My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is, is Anamorphology. The Invasion, The Visitor, The Encounter, The Message, The Predator, The Capture, The Stranger, The Alien, The Secret, The Android, The Forgotten, The Reaction, The Chain, The Unknown, The Escape, The Underground, The Decision, The Exposed, Departure, The Sound, Discovery, The Proposed, Threat, The Conspiracy, The Reception, The Deception, The Suspicious, Resistance, The Unexpected, Sacrifice, Diversion, The Beginning. Let's do this. Megamorphs 4. Back to before. You guys, I'm a little bummed that all the Megamorphs books didn't put the number of the Megamorphs book in the title. I know. Oh we could have had, like, in two the time of the dinosaurs. Elfangor's three, three crits. <laughs> the, the one delights gift. <laughs> the Andalites one gift. That would have been better. Yeah. One, yes. One Andalites gift. Yes. Yes. There you go. Yeah. One See, Andalite. We should have been editing. Five gift. <laughs> So, so what do we think of this book? Wait, wait, wait. First, we should talk about how, Gray, how correct were you? I was so correct. You were entirely correct. I'm you very are proud a genius. Of myself. I have to say, when you first said reset button, I just, because you, you, of the way you originally framed it, I yeah. was just imagining like the LMS and like a big button. But this is the reset button book. This, this is was like the reset button. Yeah. I'm so pleased. Yeah. And the title did give it away a little bit, but. Yeah. But also, Queen. Queen, Queen of predictions. Yeah, a reset button book. I'm excited that we got one. Uh-huh. And it was really fun to see what the alternate history would have been. Yeah. So I liked this one very much. Yeah. Is okay. this the best Megamorphs book? Well, one of them had dinosaurs in it. I mean, this is going to always be <laughs> You're talking to Gray. I love dinosaurs. Oh, that's, fair. that's very fair. So, second best. Mm-hmm. What did you guys think? So I did not like this one when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I I don't have a really strong memory of it. It it's late enough in the series that I didn't like reread it. It wasn't like mm-hmm. it wasn't part of the main body of my Animorphs experience. But I I think I really resented it for not feeling like canon. Mm. It's like this. Oh, it was like oh, this didn't really happen. So who cares? And I was mad that the characters were like doing different things than they'd actually done in the real version of what happened. Um, but fortunately, as I've grown up, I've, I've let go of a little bit of what was holding me back at that time, and I loved it. I really, I really liked it a lot. I thought it was a great exploration of, like, an Animorphs, like, canon divergence AU, and, uh, yeah, really great character stuff. How about you, Ted? Yeah, I loved it. It was so good. It's really good. It was, I knew that I loved it going in, Mm -hmm. and I loved it even more. Everything was so good. Mm -hmm. The way that they deal with, like... The plot of it is very, very silly, mm-hmm. but it's in that very Animorphs way that that makes it fine. Yeah, this didn't feel like a horribly plot-holy one or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the character stuff is so good. Yeah. And, like, the first two chapters, we'll talk about it, but, like, I read the first chapter and I was like, oh, this is, like, hitting at a deeper deeper level than any of the ones we've had recently. And, mm-hmm. like, yeah, just really excellent opening. And, yeah. That's a good point, that it does benefit from, we haven't heard from Apple Grant. Yeah. Since what? Since 32. 32. And 32 just wasn't this. It wasn't this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And before that, like 26. So. Yeah, 26 was great. I guess Megamorph 3 was in there as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was also not as good as this one. Right. I I don't know if I can call this the best Megamorphs book for me just because, like, nostalgia does weigh things really heavily. I think if I were reading the series for the first time, maybe I would think that. I don't know. I mean, I still like dinosaurs better, but this well, one is yeah, very but, good. Yeah, I, I don't quite have quite the level of, of dinosaur love that you do. Not that I don't love them. 
No, I understand. It's a different level. But is this your favorite uh, Megamorphs? I think head? it might be. I think going in, I would have said Megamorphs 3 I liked better. But mm. I definitely enjoyed this more. I feel like there's just the more to get out of this one. I we'll talk about it. Yeah, well, would you like to hear what happens? I would love, I would to, love hear to hear that. what happens. Generally and <laughs> poorly. It doesn't really matter because there's a reset button. So. <laughs> exactly. At the end, we'll just go back to the beginning and try it over. Spoilers. All right. Oh, wait, we're summarizing the episode. We're allowed to spoil it. Okay, oh, great. We are, and in fact, we will. Um, so, you know, spoilers. So the Megamorphs 4 opens in the middle of another really terrible battle. So it's, it's just absolutely brutal. And as they are reaching the end of that battle, the Drode shows up, and he offers Jake a choice never to have walked through the construction zone to begin with. So kind of to start over, push that reset button and see what would have happened if they had just taken the well-lit path home instead of going through a creepy construction site. And Jake takes him up on that. So we get to see the alternate history of what could have happened. Jake gets invited to the sharing by Tom, but he turns down becoming a member. Rachel ends up dating Marco. (laughs) Tobias does join the sharing, and he's infested by a yerk working for Visser One. Axe is all alone in his dome ship and has to find a way out to tell the humans about the Yerks. Cassie sees flashbacks of the original timeline, but she doesn't understand it. And Marco sees his mother, Visser One, in the flesh. Um, So as all of these pieces are kind of coming together, Axe finds his way out of the dome ship and figures out how to warn the humans. Um, And as he does that, the Yerks respond, especially Visser Three. And Visser Three uses this as an opportunity to push the invasion into an all-out war against the humans instead of the subtle invasion that Visser One had been trying to do. And so there's this huge battle. All the aliens show themselves to the humans, and the Animorphs attempt to take over the blade ship and to destroy as many Yerks as possible in the process. And over the course of that battle, Tobias is killed when Visser Three learns that his Yerk is a spy. Marco dies as he, Jake, and Rachel are fleeing from Tom and the other controllers. Rachel's killed by a hork as they board the blade ship. Cassie dies while holding Jake's hand when she's shot by a drake on beam. As Jake and Axe, the last remaining Animorphs, are standing on the deck of the blade ship about to shoot the pool ship out of the air, the Drode and the Elemist ugh, appear and <laughs> argue about what's happened. Um, so the Drode had this opportunity on behalf of Cryak to do an alternate timeline, as the Elemist has been able to do before. But it turns out that Cassie is, and I'm quoting, sub-temporarily grounded. And so she throws off Cryak's plan, which was to corrupt Jake and to get the Animorphs killed. We find out that the Elemist's shenanigans to mess with this plan actually happened early on in his getting this group of six together in the first place. The Drode is very grumpy about all of this, but he <laughs> vows to try again and says Cryak will have him, meaning Jake, yet. Uh, and then they all go back to the fight from the beginning of the book. The Drode tries to get Jake to make the same decision and then goes, nah, never mind, and they move on. <laughs> um, a lot of other things happen, but th- I think those are the big points. That was really well summarized. Excellent summary. Wow. Thanks. Mine would have been like five times as long. I'm so glad you summarized this one. <laughs> this is the uh, bullet points yeah, yeah. So I don't even know where to start. Do you guys know where you want to start? Yeah, so I was thinking the first two chapters are so good that we could just mm. like spend some time reading them when we want to get into talking about that kind of stuff. They are very good, and it is a reminder that Abel Grant, they know what they're doing really in a way do. that the ghostwriters have been varying Unequal. degrees of good, yeah. but, but I think Abel Grant really... This is such a great demonstration of their skill with this group of people and this plot in general. Yeah. Yes, do we want to just uh, read the first two chapters? I'm sure no one will mind hearing them because they're great. 
Although also disturbing, so. They're very, very disturbing. <laughs> Go for it. All right. Help me. I tried to get up. There was a body lying on me, hork His wrist blade was jammed against my side. I tried to lift up with all four legs, lift the dead thing off me, but I only had three legs. My left hind leg lay across the bright-lit floor, a curiosity, a macabre relic, tiger's paw. I tried to slide. That was better. The floor was wood, highly polished, slick with blood, animal, alien, human. I reached out with my two front paws, extended the claws, and dug them into the wood. They didn't catch at first, but then my right paw chewed wood and I gained traction. A voice said, Help. Please help me. I dragged myself slowly, carefully, gingerly out from beneath the bladed alien. The pain in the missing leg was intense. Don't let anyone ever tell you animals don't feel pain. I've been a lot of animals. Mostly they feel pain. Jake? Jake? It was Cassie. Yeah, I'm here. With a lurch, I was free of the weight pressing me down. I rose, shaky on three legs, looked around through the tiger's eyes. It was a fabric cutting room, a design house, you know, dresses no one actually wears, the kind of stuff you see on style with Elsa Clench as you're flipping channels. Fashion? Strange front organization for the Yerks? Why? There were hugely wide, long tables covered in cloth. One tilted up weirdly. One leg had been broken off entirely. Kind of like me. There were big rolls of patterned fabrics on that end that weighed the table down and made it balance, like a seesaw, not up, not down. Overhead, there were banks of brilliant fluorescent lights, splashes of stylish neon on the bare brick walls, bodies everywhere, blood, slashes of it. Cassie? I saw the wolf limp out from behind an overturned cart. She was alive. I felt a wave of relief. The last I'd seen of Cassie, she was in trouble. In the distance, out through the big doors, down the dark hallway, I heard the hoarse vocals of a grizzly bear, Rachel. Not fighting, not anymore, just raging, raging roaring with the frustration of a mad beast looking for fresh victims and finding none. Marco was already demorphed. A kid. My age, but he looked so young to me. My best friend. He demorphed to human because the alternative was bleeding to death from the gash across his gorilla throat. Demorphed to human. All better. No pain. I'm cold. I'm cold. Help me, the voice called. Make sure he can't see you, I warned Marco. Rachel came lumbering back into the room, 800 pounds of shaggy brown fur and railroad spike claws and a vaguely quizzical grin that hid sharp canines. Where's Tobias? I didn't answer. I didn't know the answer. Rachel began shoving and lifting Horkbajir bodies. She found Tobias, a crumpled hawk. He was breathing. Tobias, morph! I heard the clop-clop of delicate hooves. Axe was behind me. As alien as any of the dead lying around us. A dainty centaur. The body of a blue deer or antelope with an upper body not so different from humans. A head that was very different, mouthless, with two extra eyes perched atop movable stalks. His long, dangerous tail was wet with gore. We'd been in many fights. This one was bad. This one would invade my sleep and wake me sweating and crying. Tobias, listen to me. Go to human. Someone so cold. Help. Cassie trotted over to Rachel. She demorphed swiftly. So good to see her. Healthy. Whole. Beautiful in my eyes. He's okay, Cassie assured Rachel. I think he's just stunned. As if to prove her right, Tobias ruffled a wing and said, Hey, what? Oh, oh, I'm alive. More or less, Rachel growled. That was a crazy thing to do, you idiot. You dive bomb a horkbajir. You know, he said, thinking back now, it was crazy. Idiot, Rachel said. But she managed to put an awful lot of affection into that one insult. Tobias had saved her life, nearly ending his own. I limped over to the one injured human in the room. A human controller. An enemy. A man, maybe twenty years old. A human with an alien slug in his head. Help me, he said to the tiger's face looming above him. I'm cold. Help me. He was cut. Badly. It was a horkbitcher slash. Friendly fire. 
It's what it's called when one of your own troops accidentally injures you, kills you. hork in the middle of violence, slashed one of their comrades. Leave him, Yerk, I said. Let him alone at last. Get out of his head. Let him do this last thing as a free human being. His face was pale, white, waxy like a white candle. Someone had smashed his head, mangled his ears. I recognized the marks of a tiger's claw. His brown eyes stared up at me. I can't get out, the yerk inside his head said to me. The ears are blocked. Can't get out. I'm trapped. We have to get out of here, Axe said. They may send reinforcements. I'm cold, the human controller said. Just just get me a blanket or... Prince Jake, Axe prodded. I'm scared. Does that, does that make you happy, Andalite? The dying man said. To the Yerks, we were Andalites. The morphing technology is Andalite science, far beyond anything a human was yet capable of. So to them, we were Andalites, a misunderstanding we deliberately fostered. Axe was the only true Andalite in our group. No, it doesn't make me happy, I said. The pain. Can't you help me? Colt, help me. Come on, Jake. It was Marco. He'd remorphed. To Osprey this time. We needed to escape. The air was our surest way out. Grow wings and fly. Fly and put it all behind us. Pretty soon we'd be joking, laughing, trying anything that would make us forget what we'd seen, what we'd done. Help. Let's go, I said. I demorphed, out of sight of the doomed controller. Then I grew Falcon's wings and flew out through a window Rachel opened with her fist. My name is Jake. I live in a normal American city, in a normal American state. I love my mom and dad. I even love my big brother, Tom. I like basketball and hate math and get a little down when it rains for more than one day. I think those little Audi TTs are cool, but if I had the money and was old enough, I'd probably drive a Jeep. I live on burgers and fries and have never voluntarily consumed a Brussels sprout. My room is a mess. My homework is late. My class notes are so disorganized they cannot be read by anyone except Marco, who has been living off my notes for five years or more and sometimes has to interpret them for me. I cried the day Michael Jordan retired, and I can still tell you what time it was, what day, week, month, hour, minute, and second what I was wearing, and what I was eating when Mark McGuire banged his record homer. I'm a kid. A kid with a dog and parents and teachers and friends. Just a kid. I have these nightmares. Sometimes I'm a termite trapped inside a piece of wood. Can't get out and the clock is ticking, tick-tock, tick-tock. Can't escape wooden walls and blackness all around me, pressing me tight. Sometimes I'm falling, flying and my wings just aren't there and I'm a mile up in the sky, falling and thinking, I can't fly, I can't fly. Sometimes still, even now, I see the dark red eye of Kryak and feel his malice reaching for me all across the millions of light years. But the worst dream is just me and Cassie, and we're standing in the forest somewhere. She's outlined in light, you know, like there's a bright light hidden behind her. And it's almost like she's shining, and and there's this cave, and I'm telling her to go in, and she's looking at me with trust in her eyes, looking at me and loving me and believing in me and trusting me, and I'm telling her to go into the cave. I'm the leader of the Animorphs. I don't know how that happened. It was some doom pronounced by Marco. Why me? Because, Marco said. Because it has to be. We were five kids taking a shortcut home from the mall at night. There was a ship. There was an alien. There is the destructive worm of knowledge. You are not alone. You are not safe. Nothing is what it seems. No one is who they seem to be. The knowledge of betrayal and terror. The awareness of evil. And then, the power. The power made us responsible, see? Without the power, the knowledge would have just been a worm of fear eating up our insides. Bad enough, but it was the power that turned fear into obligation, that laid the weight on our unready shoulders. 
We could become any animal we touched, the Andalite told us. Power enough to win? No. Power enough to fight? Uh, yes. Just enough, little Jake. Here is just enough power to imprison you in a cage of duty, to make you fight. Help. Help. Oh, sorry. Do you want me to do that? Help me. I'm cold. Another battle. Another horror. Couldn't anything make it end? Was there no way out? Was I trapped, fighting, fighting till one by one my friends died or went nuts? I lay on my bed, stared up at the ceiling. Help me, please. I'm cold. Into the cave, Cassie. All for what? For nothing. To delay the Yerks, but never to win, and someday to lose. Was there no way out? There's always a way out, Jake the Mighty, a voice said. My lord Cryak holds out his omnipotent hand to you, Jake the Yerk Killer, Jake the Elemist's tool. I sat up. I knew the voice. The drode stood by my desk. It wasn't large. It perched forward like one of those small dinosaurs. It had mean, smart eyes and a humanoid head. It was wrinkled, dark green or purple maybe, so dark it was almost black. The mocking mouth was lined with green. The drode was Cryak's creature, his emissary, his tool. Cryak was... Cryak was evil, a power so vast, so complete, that only the Elemist could keep him in check. A balance of terror, evil and good, checking each other, limiting each other, making deals that affected the survival of entire solar systems. Go away, I said to the drode. But you called me. Go back to Cryak, leave me alone. The drode smiled. He got up and moved closer closer till his face was only inches from my own. There is a way out, the drode whispered. Say the word, and it never was, Jake. Say the word, Jake, and you never walked through the construction site. Say the word, and you know nothing. No weight on your shoulders. Say the word. Go away, I said through gritted teeth. How long till your cousin Rachel loses her grip? You know the darkness is growing inside her. How long till Tobias dies? A bird. A bird! How can he ever be happy? How long till Marco is forced to destroy his own controller mother? Will he survive that, do you think? How long, Jake, till you kill Tom? Then what dreams will come, Jake the Yerk Killer? Get out of here. Crawl back under your rock. It will happen, Jake. You know that. The cave. The day will come. You know what the cave is, Jake. You know what it means, that dark cave. You know that death is within. When she dies, when Cassie dies, it will be at your word, Jake. I covered my face with my hands. My master Cryak offers you an escape. In his compassion, great Cryak has stuck a... In his compassion, great Cryak has struck a deal with that meddling nitwit Elemist. Cryak would free you, Jake. Crack would free you all. All will be as it would have been if you had simply taken a different path home. I saw that moment again, at the mall, deciding whether to take the safe, well-lit, sensible way home, or the route that would take us through the construction site, into a meeting that would change everything. Undo it. Undo it all. No more war. No more pain and fear and guilt. Just one word, Jake, the drode whispered. No. No, two, I think. One must not sacrifice good manners. Two words, and it never was. Two words, and you know nothing, have no power, no responsibility. What words? One is Cryak, the other is please. I wanted to say no. 
I wanted to say no. I wanted. All right. Yeah, those chapters are great. They are incredible. I feel like the that first chapter is, it's like the perfect setup for the rest of the series, right? It's like, it's a restatement of how bad things are for all of the characters. And it's so bad that it's like, there's no question that Jake would be tempted by the reset oh, yeah. button, right? Like it's it, such a great, like, tiny capsule illustration of why this temptation works. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's like they're they're almost dead, right? You get sort of like Rachel's maybe losing it a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the the controller who's dying though is really like the master stroke because we haven't really had that. Like, mm-hmm. Ray, you've been talking about how we haven't had that. Like, we haven't really grappled with like the death that the animorphs are causing. To their enemies, but also to innocent mm-hmm. people. And even their enemies, you know, their guilt is variable. Well, and here it's variable too, right? I mean, he's been, the controller has been mauled by Jake, but he's dying because of the hork Right. And I think, I, which is yeah. a little bit of a It's cheat, a little bit of a cop-out. But it, it is a good way to make it about the death and not about their guilt in some ways. But I also think there's some subtext to like Jake looking at him and being like, Oh man, I like, did I slow him down? Did I do like, Hmm. right. He, the fact that his, his tiger claw is visible. It's a nice progression of like, Oh yeah, this guy, he was killed by one of the Horkajir. Oh crap. There are tiger marks on his head. Like Hmm. it's a nice, like sinking in of the, the blame. That's I like that. I like that framing yeah. of it because I was thinking like, oh yeah, totally a cop out. Like he could have just been killed by the animorphs. Well, and it is. It's also a good subtext there that it's the tiger's mauling of him that uh, keeps the yerk from calling yeah. out of his head. Yep. Oh right? yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's Jake's fault that he can't be uninfested in the last moments of his life. Mm-hmm. And I like the almost like it's unclear that the yerk would be willing to do that, but it's like this isn't a this isn't like a Temrash style. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's someone who's just like help me, help me, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, this person isn't made into an enemy in this moment. He's mm-hmm. just right. a victim of the right. war. And, and understandably is, you know, taunting the, and, the so-called Andalites, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, like, it's not like he's uh, a member of the peace movement or something, right? But, right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Just another another enemy here. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a nice insight into what we're going to get for the rest of the book, which is a lot more information about the sharing and what it's like to be a human controller and how that can happen. Um, And that's one of the things I really liked about this book is we've seen flashes of this in the other books about the ways in which the sharing is doing well for its members, right? There's the the, um, kid who was kind of a deadbeat and then now has like a job and wears a tie that, Mm -hmm. that we were talking about. And there's all these kind of flashes of, when you take out the whole being controlled by a yerk thing, mm-hmm. the sharing's actually great for a lot of people. <laughs> um, but you see that here. There's a lot of different ways people are brought into the sharing and kind of, especially in Tobias's story. And I like the idea at the beginning that we see where that ends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's such a good microcosm of, like, they're fighting this war to free people from the yerks, but in the short term, like, this battle kept this guy from being free from the yerk even in his dying moments like they have to on a small scale sabotage what they value in order to achieve it on the large scale i also like the like it's a it's an out of context battle which makes sense because it's just the inciting incident for this book and they're Mm -hmm. not we don't need more context than this but i also like the note of absurdity where he's like so yeah we're having this horrible 
horrible battle in the middle of like a high fashion warehouse yeah. and he's like why are we like he's, he's sort of asked why are we doing this and there's no answer right it's just kind of an absurd it's, an it's absurd, absurd but like also i mean it's a little heavy-handed but this like this table that is a metaphor for jake <laughs> <laughs> well that's what it was I don't know. so to me i like i really like that because it's I, like I it's it the too. kind of weird observation that you would make that it makes sense that he would think it but it's just like a weird i don't know yeah. It's like mm-hmm. a weird thought that springs yeah. to mind. And it really does um, strongly reinforce this thing where they're trapped. They have to keep doing this over and over. Mm-hmm. And they keep not dying, but they keep having to do it again. And, you know, and they're kind of broken now. And they just, you know, they never get to leave this, like, seesaw limbo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, right. And so, like, I really like that this is the moment when Jake gets the reset button offer because it's so plausible that he could take it. And then, and then obviously, it would, it would undermine his character going forward if he remembered what was happening. So like, mm-hmm. it's very fitting that only the readers are kind of aware. And Cassie. And, well, yeah, and Cassie to some extent. <laughs> we'll see. But um, it's so crucial to what they're going through mm-hmm. that they that there is no escape. Like you were just saying, right? They have to keep doing it. They have to keep yeah. doing it. So mm-hmm. it's cool to see them get that escape. Yeah. Briefly, or you know, get that temptation. It's interesting that the the temptation that really pushes him over the edge in the second chapter is Cassie. Mm-hmm. I think that wouldn't have been the case at the actual start of the series. Like, I think it was more about Tom for him, mm-hmm. and maybe because of book thirty one, you know, he. I don't think he's come to terms with the idea of like having to kill Tom, but like, he's already written him off in his mind mm. in a sort of theoretical sense, in a like, I might have to do this. And Cassie has really grown in importance to him. So I, I feel like I've been a little tough on the Cassie-Jake dynamic. And, like, especially the way that, like, Jake kind of thinks of Cassie as, like, mm-hmm. oh, she's, like, this pure thing that I'm fighting for that, I, you know, like, or she's, like, almost damselly. Yeah, my but, girlfriend-shaped object who I fight for. Yeah. Right. But this feels like a realer connection, right? Yeah. The way the way that it, the dream he has and mm-hmm. the the crushing guilt he feels about how much she's willing to follow him. It just, it feels like there's a deeper connection there. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. I, I really like seeing what she means to him in this, mm-hmm. in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I think it's a good um, example of the ways in which their relationship has really developed over the course mm-hmm. of the series. And of course she wasn't this central to him at the beginning. Yeah. They were, they hadn't even held hands yet <gasps> or whatever. Um, and so it's a nice indication that, this is where their relationship has developed to in part because of all these battles that mm-hmm. they face together and that it's not, I, th- I think part of it is that, you know, he's fighting for her and whatever, but it's this guilt too mm-hmm. of when Cassie dies, it will be at your word mm-hmm. that it's not just everyone's facing danger all the time, but that as the leader, Jake has the responsibility of, putting them in that situation Mm -hmm. so when and if she dies it will be jake's fault to some extent i mean Mm -hmm. she's in the battle for her own choices and so on but you can see why jake would think that Um, right and and that's why he has to be the one who pushes the button right right. he's like right because in canon he has no way out and that's just part of what he signed up for Mm -hmm. but yeah of course he's gonna take it if you could push the button and make it so that it's it's not your responsibility when your friends die yeah and it also like there's all this stuff about how they got this power and with the power, the responsibility, but like he doesn't directly connect it to, but like he has extra power as the leader and he 
I think the reason he feels like he can make this decision for everyone is because he already has this power. Mm. He has the power and he's going to have to use it probably someday to like result in their deaths. And so it feels like it's his role also to like to make that call that lets them avoid that fate. Mm. Unfortunately not, as it turns out, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I love the I love the irony of that. Right. It's like his decision to push the reset button does get all of his friends killed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like turns out he was already doing the best that he could. Well, <laughs> or well he's always already he had already taken that's the best what, option. Well that's what but best in what sense? Because it's <laughs> like it's so interesting that the I mean, we should get into all these elements, right? But like by resetting the timeline, he the the situation that they end up in is one where the anamorphs can't morph. So mm-hmm. they they they're way more vulnerable to getting killed. And also the battle between Yerks and humans escalates into open war very quickly, mm-hmm. which is also a much more dangerous situation than the kind of like slow infiltration that's mm-hmm. going on and like the Andalite bandits terrorism campaign that's going on, right? So like both of those elements mean that um, people who are fighting are a lot more vulnerable. Yeah. And I love that they managed to work the open war alternate universe mm-hmm. into this other. Yeah. 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 But, again, because of, like, the the trade-offs here, the fact that they reset the timeline allows them to get into a situation where um, Visser 3 is killed, mm-hmm. the blade ship is taken out of commission, and all the Yerks aboard the pool ship are exploded by Axe and Jake mm-hmm. um, by the end, which is like... They might have won. Right, like yeah. if Mighty Marco is making this decision, right? It's like, okay, so would you kill all the Anamorphs off in order to save humanity? Yeah, he could—he's the kind of person who might be tempted to do that, right? Yeah. So, like in terms of a like trying to win the war optimization, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, what's the balance here? Mm. It's a little bit of a bummer that the Anamorphs don't really get to make that choice. Like, it's really the Drode who's like, "No, stop! We won't do this." Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like he sort of pulls the plug on it. I guess the Anwars do kind of get to discuss that. They're mostly processing their horror at like what happened to them. But you're right, Ted. That like that. I mean, that's the choice that Marco is grappling with with his mom in Visser. Like maybe we can fight back. Yes, but a lot of people will die. Is it worth the open war if that would actually end the war and get them out of this like horrible limbo seesaw status quo thing? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and right, so Jake and the Elemus reflect on it at the end, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, after the timeline's going to be reset, but they have this little opportunity to kind of reflect on it. And Jake is like, well, we almost won. And the Elemus is like, yeah, but at what cost? Mm -hmm. And um, it's sort of like, no. It's also, like, you know, like, the Endlights haven't shown up yet. The war isn't over yet, right? Like, you can't can't necessarily say it was all going to work out. Right, yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. And there's also a little bit of, like, how much does Cassie cheating Mm, undermine the fact that they won, which we could talk about a little little bit more. Right, because if this had happened the first time around, Cassie wouldn't have come back to life the way she did right at the end, because there were temporal anomalies. We should talk about the Cassie thing more. Yeah. Um, But what I was going to say was the... Right, so then you you get this moment, Jake is like, okay, but... Okay, so, like, maybe this isn't what I want to have happened, but, like, I, I absolutely hate being trapped the way that we're trapped mm-hmm. and the elemist like narrows in his focus just on jake and then like very grimly says it's gonna end right like mm-hmm. he's like promising him it's gonna end which mm-hmm. is 
it's it's what he wants to hear, but it's also the message is delivered in a way that <laughs> makes me very concerned. Absolutely, but and it and it makes me more concerned because the question that he's answering is not just will it end, but Jake asks three questions. He asks, "Is there anything better in our real timeline? Will it happen any better there? Will it at least ever end?" And the Elemist oh, only, the only answer answers is, that last one. Is that the only thing that's better that it will end? It will end is what he says. And Ooh. it's just, okay, well, that does not give me a ton of hope for the end game of this. Like, but it also, we are reading this series knowing there are 54 regular series books and like this many extras. Like, the readers at this point in the series had no idea how long the series would be. This is probably mm. the first indication we've had in sort of a meta sense, like, oh, this series is going to have an end. Mm. Like, that was not something you could take for granted. Like, Babysitter's Club goes on forever. Yeah. I assume it did end eventually, but, like, it probably didn't have a, like, actual ending end. And there are, like, 150 books. And yeah, it's yeah. literally three times as long, so. Yeah, but I bet this was, like, the first the first glimmer of that. I also, so, I really like that element of it. And I the reason that I like the way this AU works is because, like, I was the one the one thing that I didn't love rereading this at first was like this thing where like Cassie knows the timeline is wrong. It's like, do we really need that? Like, wouldn't it be more interesting just to have a like totally, yeah. totally clean AU where it's like this is what would have happened with no outside interference? But I actually like the way that it works in term in the sort of um talking to the reader sense mm-hmm. because Cassie is like us. She's like, no, this is wrong. Like, mm-hmm. this AU feels wrong. And, like, probably in a way that, like, 14-year-old Jenny reading this was like, no, this is wrong. Like, well, how, <laughs> oh, it was so is, wrong. Yeah. Right, where is device? Where is X? And so I really, I ended up coming around and really liking that element mm-hmm. of it. Where yeah, I can see the, that, yeah. the reader is aware that things are wrong. We are, if you'll allow... <laughs> Subtemporally grounded in the narrative <laughs> of the animorphs. And, I will not allow. And we know that it, it. it's not going to be. It's not going to be this AU for the rest of the series, right? right? We know right. that somehow mm-hmm, it's all going to mm-hmm. come crashing down on them by the end. Yeah. So why not? Why not put make that part of the story instead of like you know? There's a twist in the last chapter where it's like, oh, we found you know the timeline matrix. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's fair. I, I'm always a little hesitant when Cassie gets magic abilities Mm. (laughs) because it's not there's a there's a trope of like magic black women Mm -hmm. I don't love when that yeah in that first book where it's like she's mystical yeah please don't um and and so that gives me a little bit of hesitation obviously we've seen Cassie's incredible empathy and her abilities in other ways this one seemed. Uh, what I, I wasn't annoyed by Cassie being the person who thinks that things mm-hmm. are off because I can I can understand she's intuitive that she's, to a sense. Yeah, that I, yeah. And and there there's you know she has these dreams. She hears acts. The things that we saw from the from the beginning, I can kind of see what the point when I was like, "Are you kidding me?" Was when. She's she's an anomaly. She's subtemporally grounded, is what the Elemis says. Um, she's a freak of nature, says the <laughs> Uh And the Elemis agrees with that. And 
so they call her an anomaly for the for the whole thing and so she gets this like mystical you know you um, the druid says you knew whatever timeline i built her presence would eventually destabilize it she felt that the timeline had shifted and um then the element says to cassie I'm going to read this because it was like, art. Ah. Okay. (laughs) Most creatures live entirely within their timeline, the Elemis said, like a person trapped in a single room. They see only what is within those four walls. Others, like yourself, Cassie, can see beyond those walls, can see other rooms as though the walls were translucent. You felt the change. You sensed that things were not right. You could see only dimly, but you could see beyond. You could see what should be, where you belonged, and without consciously knowing it, you were working to repair what had been torn apart, to reconstitute time as it should have been. You were a virus in the software. You degraded the subtle workings of the drode's artificial time shunt. That is a nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Yeah. Nonsense. And it's nonsense that's like... Well, it didn't work because Cassie's magic, so she gets to go in there and, like, mess things up. It's like, but that's not... It y- yes, but that's not actually why it fails. Okay. It fails because the drone stops fails it. Fails because the drone stops it, and he stops it because yeah, like Cassie comes back, and then Marco comes back, and then what's going to happen next? But also because Jake and Axe are about to destroy the the pool ship. Yeah, and so it's not just Cassie's glitching this system it's the droid is making choices based on the outcomes of these battles, and so mm-hmm. it just seems like a little bit of a. Hey, Cassie, we're going to just put this on you, just mm-hmm, so you know, mm-hmm. your magic, and you can see through the walls of time into other universes and timelines. It's nonsense. Also, we've seen alternate timelines before where she has not That's necessarily true. had that. So I have theories about that. Before we get into that, like, I, as you're saying that, Gray, like, yeah, it really, that is not why it failed. It failed because the drone stopped it. And I would love to have seen, like, I feel like they felt like they needed to add this, like, Cassie will glitch it all to, like, as a way to get out of this. I would have loved to see the drone stop it because he's like, no, 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 this isn't how I wanted it to go. And they're all like, what? And then they have to make a choice between this timeline and the other one. Mm -hmm. Like, that, I feel like, would have been a way out of it without this, like, weird, like, oh, it never would have worked because Cassie's magic. Yeah, I mean, I do think... The, the only problem with that, I agree, absolutely. Um, that would have been a Jake decision entirely, right? Because well, it could have been the whole group dead. deciding. Oh, I mean, the, the whole group could have been yeah, brought back to have this. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, because I, one of the things that we don't really see a lot of, we see a little bit of, um, but it's Axe and Jake at the mm-hmm. end, right? They're the two people who are making this call. And Axe, as he is in this book, without having been part of the Animorphs. Right. Although he could have gotten his memories back. Like, I feel like if they were going to make the choice, they would have to remember both. Right, exactly. So it's just, it's a question of kind of how the drone, does he stop this artificial timeline, bring everyone back with their memories and say, here are your two choices? Or does he say, at this point in the artificial timeline, I am stopping it for the pool ship, and Jake, as he only knows this version, you know, like, there there are other ways you can do it. I would be interested to see Jake and Axe get their memories back. Mm -hmm. Everyone else is dead. They have to choose. And choosing this timeline, like, they would have to, they would have lost these people they now remember. Well, yeah, that would have been a good choice. But I want to talk about the very end of the book, Mm. which I absolutely love, which is the final (laughs) chapter is Jake replaying the first two chapters sort of on fast forward. Yeah, like the whole second chapter is like in there, right? Yeah, and 
Um, then, right, you get the droid's tempting offer, and you have Jake thinking, well, I wanted to say yes, I wanted dot, dot, dot. And then the droid says, oh, never mind, and the book ends, which <laughs> it's an amazing, like, anticlimax, right? And to me, that kind of hits home on the idea that, like, this this all was out of canon and uh-huh. something between the elements and the droid. And, like, I like that you don't get Jake saying, you know what, I am in this fight. Mm-hmm. What happens in canon is, like, Jake is tempted by the drone and he's going to say yes. And then the drone is like, ugh, <laughs> nope, and leaves. Right? And so Jake is still left with all of these terrible feelings. Ooh. And you don't know that, like, secretly Jake would have rallied and chosen to be And here. presumably he wouldn't have because nothing had changed from the actual second chapter of the book where he said yes. So Oh, yeah, but yeah. I guess what I mean is, like... <laughs> You don't even get Jake and the AU Jake saying, I'd rather be canon Jake. Yeah, you don't don't get that moment. Can you imagine? Poor canon Jake had this really hard battle. (laughs) The droid shows up and tells him all this mean stuff, starts to give him an option, and then is like, never mind, and storms (laughs) off. And you're like, what was that? What just happened? Now you've just left me with all of these, like cruel hints about the future. And he can't even talk to his friends about it because he feels too much of the like loneliness of leadership and he can't be like, Cassie, there's this thing where the droid said you were going to die and, you know, he's not going to yeah. do that. Here's another thought is that like we know that Kryak has the hots for killing Jake, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. what if the reason the droid stops it isn't because the Animorphs are going to win the war, it's just because he's like, oh man, I was pretty sure Jake was going to die but he didn't die, right? Like, <laughs> now I see the future. Like, all, who cares if all these other animorphs die? Who cares if the animorphs win the war? Jake. Right, yeah. right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess Axe was sort of saying we probably won't survive this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. but that's that's so. true. So there is that line, just to touch on Crack having the hots for killing Jake. It's like, you know, Crack will have you someday, the droid says. And Elemis is like, yes, or maybe he'll have Crack. And I was like, that's putting it on different footing. Like, we haven't uh, really heard the Elemist propose that the Animorphs have the ability to do something like mm-hmm. lasting damage to yeah. Kryak, mm-hmm. as opposed to just being this sort of one of many battlegrounds where mm-hmm. Kryak and the Elemist are fighting. Right. Well, I'm excited for book 51 when that happens. Yeah. And then they find the new reset button. Right, exactly. Um, I, ha- I, was, I was thinking about Cassie being so temporarily grounded. There's word of God that exists from Catherine Applegate saying, yeah, so I was writing this book and I didn't know how to end it. And then I had like an aha moment where like... Yeah, right. see, I think they should have just done what I proposed. But anyway, go yeah, on. So like was, I didn't tell was, them at the time, so right. I can't blame it's them. It's not like any of the stuff earlier was written with this in mind, right? Clearly. That was actually obvious to me. <laughs> that, was, but that was evident. There's some there's some arguments that can be made for okay. consistency. Okay. Um, one, on. one, Saria rips are deterministic, time travel, this always happens type things, mm-hmm. right? So Cassie destabilizing them wouldn't matter because, like, when they go back to the time of the dinosaurs, that all always happens. Tobias oh, yeah. always so that is the real, killed the Recorder. That is a right? real time. That's thing. part of the part of the real timeline, right? So eleven wasn't. Um, oh, that's true. Eleven ends up never yeah. happening. But she did. Like, she was the one who noticed. The She's time, the one who the notices right away. She's like, wait, why is it sunset over the whatever? Yeah, and also it didn't last that long. Right, it yeah. lasted a few hours. Right, and it took a while for Cassie to really destabilize right. this one. Now the time matrix, right? You have, um, you know, like, fascist Jake and all the other Animorphs have been living Mm -hmm. in this alternate timeline that's terrible their whole lives, and Cassie Mm -hmm. has not successfully destabilized it. Mm -hmm. Um, This one is harder to argue, but I would like to propose that 
the time matrix is more powerful than the Elemist or the Drode. And so the Drode's time shunting or whatever nonsense that is proposed at the end is not creating a true new timeline or whatever. The time matrix actually does change what is true and real. So Cassie doesn't get to be more powerful than the time matrix itself. Alternatively, Jake thought in that like Megamorphs 3 alternate thing that Cassie might be like subversive. It's possible she retained more of her personality and a sense of this is wrong. This is like not how it's supposed to be because we never saw in her head in the alternate timeline. I do like that. And I think it might have been a like, we're putting you in the, in a timeline where this was always the case, but it's not like the timeline played out from, you know, the beginning of history that way, maybe. So maybe they hadn't been in that timeline long enough for Cassie to destabilize it fully or something. Right. I don't know. Sort of mm-hmm. bogus theories. I want to look well, up. I want to see how she reacted to uh, to the time travel in Seven. What? Well, in Seven, I was going to say, this is the Elemis showing them like a fake future or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we had theories at the time about whether how real it was. But one thing that you could also argue is that like the Elemis is kind of like projecting outward. And then there are those like weird inconsistencies about like what happened to Axe. And like there are other things that don't quite make sense. So you could argue that that's just an example of like... Cassie being there is is sort of causing glitches in the timeline, and the Elmus is like, oh, wow, yeah, Cassie is sub-temporally grounded. Like, I'm not going to be able to do this, this these kinds of, like, timeline shenanigans to get what I want. Oh, Cassie is also the to- totally the one who who says, like, Rachel's like, when did this happen? I skip one day and the place burns down? I don't think so, Cassie said in a strange, distracted voice. I don't think this is something that's happened past tense. I think we're talking future tense. And, like... In that later she says, like, Axe says, there's time distortion, I sense it, but I don't know what it means. It's the future, Cassie said. Like, I feel like there is, it's probably, I mean, it is, clearly, since they didn't have this in mind, just like Cassie. Some retroactive foreshadowing. Cassie being observant and intelligent, but, you know, you could totally read that as, like, she has, like, a better sense of what's going on with time. So, one of the things that, um, another thing that I really like about this Cassie BS. <laughs> um, <laughs> outside of the context of this book is that the stakes for the Animorphs, like the Animorphs has always been a sort of story about kids that have this terrible secret and it becomes the story about kids that are child soldiers fighting this terrible war that's, you know, really draining them of their humanity and, and all this stuff. And that story isn't the most important one. And it kind of has trouble existing alongside of this, like, uh, chess battle between mm, you know mm-hmm. a good god and an evil god who are like these all-powerful you know creatures out there and they've they've done some really good stuff like when they defeat the howlers like that's an awesome you know mm-hmm. humans rise to the challenge and save the whole universe type thing but that's not really the stakes the series i think mm, wants yeah. to be about mm. so one thing that this book does is basically says like uh, the story that we're getting in the Animorphs books is the one we're going to get. There's not going to be this kind of like, okay, well, the the Drode can send them all into this evil timeline, or the Elmas can send them all into mm. this good timeline, or like we can have this like, you know, real deus ex machina moment where, okay, well, none of that stuff really mattered, and you all get a happy ending, right? Like, what they're saying is basically like, even the Elmist and Cryak can't really mess up what is going to happen over the rest of the series. The story is subtemporally grounded. Right. So, like, Cassie means that we're going to get one true ending, and there's not going to be 
Sorry, Gray. There's not going to be like, so, okay, yeah. we're just so going to fix it all. Disproves yeah. like this says that a reset button would actually be impossible. They did the the beta testing on the reset button. Didn't work. Didn't work. Okay. The Cassie thing here bothers me because it doesn't feel rooted in her character. It does feel like magic nonsense they have placed on her. And we can find, like, little bits in the past where, like, okay, if anyone was going to have this, I guess it would be Cassie. But, like, what? Like, it does like... It comes out of nowhere. We had no idea that being subtemporally grounded was a thing. Like, we don't know why it's a thing for her. Mm-hmm. It's completely random and doesn't seem to connect to, like, her personality or her choices. Like, I don't know. It's, I don't buy it. I don't buy it either. I also really, one of the things that uh, they talk about at the end is the Elemist bringing together this group yeah, yeah, of people. That. And Cassie, according to the list that we are given, mm-hmm. four of the six humans there are... Only five humans. Oh, sorry. Four of the six people, mm-hmm. four of the six Animorphs, are important, cosmically important, in this battle between the Elemist and Cryak. Now, those... The two that are left out are Rachel and Jake, who are apparently not cosmically important, despite mm-hmm. Cryak's obsession with Jake. Mm-hmm. But the, the group includes Alfengor's brother, his time-shifted son, which I want to come back to, <laughs> this anomalous girl here, and the son of Visser One's host body. A group of six supposedly random humans. See, that's why I thought it was... Oh, you're right. It does say six supposedly random, random humans. humans. That was... Yeah. yeah <laughs> a group of six ra- supposedly random people that contains <laughs> these four. You stacked the deck, says the drone. Does this mean that Axe is secretly human and the drone just let it slip? Okay, maybe, but also... <laughs> oh, wait, wait, this is also consistent with the fake... Maybe in all fake timelines, Axe is secretly human because there were six human animorphs in <gasps> book seven. <gasps> Oh, you're so correct. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Also, Tobias is time-shifted. There's our missing five years. I'm so glad we found it. Do we think that that's what happened? Or is it just that he was shifted from one timeline into another? Well, because Cassie is subtemporally grounded, she's so special. What if Tobias is just, like, a little bit older than her? So the reason the Elemis has to blow up that timeline is because as soon as Cassie is born, that becomes the real timeline. So he has to oh. get Elfangor out and reset everything. Oh. Because so Cassie for Cassie's lifespan... a little bit after Tobias. Exactly. For Cassie's lifespan, <laughs> the timeline can't change. That's why he. we thought he was just such a jerk for picking this yeah. moment right after Lauren figured out she was pregnant. But really, it was that Cassie was about to be conceived, anyway, and then he wouldn't like, have been able to alter time anymore. Honestly, I have I have also have problems with the Cassie, <laughs> the Cassie nonsense, so like I don't want to make it seem too possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not. Let's just really fast to but, time out. Yeah. <laughs> All nonsense. Let's, yeah, but the thing where Tobias is time-shifted does perhaps, like, I think the events as they're laid out in Andalite Chronicles do not imply that Tobias was ever time-shifted. It's just that his father was taken away mm-hmm. through some time magic. So, yeah, I guess that they, they did skip, they jumped him ahead five years to be the right age to be an animal. Apparently. <laughs> there is something else about Cassie's glitching that I think is worth calling out. Right, so part of it is like just reminding us that this is wrong and getting us to have this like, oh, like why are the animals together? This shouldn't be, this shouldn't mm-hmm. be. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like the glitches that happen, both like 
push the Animorphs towards each other mm-hmm. and sort of like accelerate things towards this ending where they yeah, can yeah. get a really good victory at incredible cost. Right. So Cassie obviously coming back to life at the end is the mm-hmm. best example of that. But like But even when, Marco's mom showing up. Right. When Marco's mom shows up, that gets Marco in the fight. Gets and Marco and Rachel united. It, it, right. It bonds Marco and Rachel in this really strong way. It, like without that, they wouldn't have that connection. No. Right. And Rachel would not have agreed to go out with him without that. Right, 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 right. She we're gonna, we're gonna talk about that. Yeah, we'll talk about it. And then like Axe, um, Axe sees he keeps having these like weird hallucinations when he's in the dome ship. Mm-hmm. And so like I was like, that has nothing to do with Cassie. What is that? What is that? But it kind of makes sense. Is like he has this big choice of like, should I go? I should go, but I'm kind of nervous about it. How long do I wait? And so if he thinks the isolation is getting uh-huh. to him, that uh-huh. that spurs him to act sooner, right? And so like for each and. You know, Tobias doesn't have any of these moments, but then it's, like, almost too late before he gets infested, he has this, like, I should be a bird, yeah. I should be flying. Yeah, and, and so that's, that's probably what makes him say no, part of what makes him say no. Right, so, but that's, like, you know, if he'd, if, he'd, if he'd had that a little sooner, maybe he could have survived and joined up with them at the mm-hmm. end, right? So, like, I feel like all of the glitches are not just kind of, like, random things, but they're mm-hmm. also, like, pushing the Animorphs towards them reuniting in the mm-hmm. way that is, like, it's supposed to be, mm-hmm. which is what Cassie wants. Right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think it's, it's sort of interesting. It's not just like a, it's, it's a good like plot dynamic. It, yeah. it helps push the book along. I want to, I want to talk about what happens to the individual Animorphs, but first I do want to return. Gray, you were talking about this thing where like four of the six Animorphs were somehow like special or chosen, like deliberately mm. united by the LMS. And I think this is something that like Ted has alluded to. And I vaguely remembered that there was something about it, but I did not specifically remember like, the reason that Cassie was special or, like, at what point we were told mm-hmm. this. And, yeah, I don't I don't love it. Because, <laughs> like, and Ted, you've said this before, and now that I've, like, I have more information, I'm like, oh, yeah, I agree with that. But, like, it is more fun if it's, like, these normal kids, and this is how normal kids rise to this occasion, mm-hmm. rather than, like, oh, yeah, and three of them are, like, special. Like, it could only be them for these reasons. And then it does seem like Jake and Rachel are random or maybe like the connections between Cassie and Marco um, and just, you know, good choices for the group. Mm -hmm. Well, it's true. I I mean, I agree with past Ted. I was definitely (laughs) referring to this moment. Yeah, yeah. But I think that Cassie is like, Cassie being magic is probably the worst offender. Mm -hmm. But there's a little bit of it like, oh, it's so convenient that like Visser One's son is. I guess it does help explain that. Otherwise, it would be too. Right. So it is a little bit, it's like, is it over explaining it? Like, it's kind of like lampshading, like, oh, well, we just like have everyone's related thing. Right, right, right. It's like Jake, Jake's brother's a controller, but there are lots of people whose like siblings are, or right. family members are controllers. Right. So the thing that I really don't love about it is the like the sort of like preordained destiny thing. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, but I yeah, and so like, and again, you get the elements here saying it will end very mm-hmm. gravely. So it's like, how much is it? How much do their choices really matter? Like, I, I really want, I really want the choices that Jake and everyone makes for the rest of the series to. I want them to have agency. And mm. that's where this, like, they're pawns of these chess masters thing rubs me the wrong yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's still room in here for it to be, like, the Elemis says it will end. Presumably he can sort of see that that will happen, but that doesn't mean that it's not the independent choices of the Animorphs that bring it about. Like, time is complicated. Right. I don't feel like that totally nullifies it. But you're, it does it does weaken that, you know, six kids unite and 
try to take down evil aliens. Like, it it takes away a little bit from that narrative. Yeah. At least the Animorphs aren't aware of it. Except for Cassie. A little bit, yeah. So, yeah, do we want to talk about what some of the individual Animorphs went through? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. How have we not mentioned Tobias? How have we waited this long? The absolute best part of this book are the Tobias chapters, hands down. Disagree with me. They're the best thing. It's so good. <laughs> I don't know. Axe talking about the cookies. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the Tobias thing. Like, what? Like, you're great. You said this already. Like, it's so great to see firsthand someone who goes through the sharing and, like, is sort of courted by this, like, cult-like group and, like, makes this choice. And you can totally see why he made the choice. Even after he becomes a controller, he's like, I don't see what other choice I would have reasonably made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so hard, right? Yeah. He, he basically thinks, like, yeah, all I could have done was, like, endured the suffering. Right? Yeah, like, for my, another, like, five years right, at least. Right, my option was just to wait it out five years and hope that And it even gets then, better. you're an 18-year-old without, like, family or connections. You're still going to be miserable. You're going to have a lot of work to build yeah. your life. Like, yeah. And just, like, all of Tobias is such a... He's such a good, well-realized character, uh-huh. and there are all these little moments of his interactions with his his uncle and with his sharing guide and with Jake, mm-hmm. where he's just he acts just like such an insecure teenager, mm-hmm. and he's with that self-awareness right. that he's kind of, you know, not putting he's not being his best self or whatever. But or like, yeah, he doesn't know how to become his best self. Right, he doesn't have right, the tools, right. and, and like, he's aware of that. Yeah. He's like when he confronts Jake and he's basically like, oh, you're trying to say the sharing's just for losers or something? And Jake's like, obviously, no, I'm not doing that. And Tobias is aware that he's overreacting. Yeah, but he yeah. can't keep himself from doing it. He's it's, so human. Yeah, it's so good. Like everything about it is so good. Like what the sharing offers is like legitimately wonderful. Like mm-hmm. it obviously has this huge sting in the tail. Like what it's asking you to give in exchange for that is like not at all okay and completely horrible. But if you haven't seen that part of it yet, mm-hmm. if you don't know that like, oh, I'm going to be controlled by an alien and I won't actually be living this life, then like it's great. It's like this is like a brutal takedown of cults. Like. Mm. It is a takedown of cults, kind of. Yeah, yeah. In that when Tobias realizes what's going to happen, he does try to get out of it. Mm -hmm. But it's also such a great example of the importance of having that kind of built community, Mm -hmm. deliberate community. Without even aliens involved. Without aliens involved. That... You know, there's a there's a part where at the beginning we see him being bullied, and then later on he's being bullied, and people he does not know from the sharing come and stand up for him uh-huh. with no expectation of reward. Yep. They are just there because he is a member of this cult. Mm-hmm. And there's something to be said for deliberate communities in which, you know, being a member of a group provides you protection from bullies, but also a sense of belonging yeah, and support. shared purpose. Yeah, connections. And that's obviously, I'm not here to tell you to join a cult, but <laughs> there, there's a reason that as humans, we respond to those pressures, yeah. right? It's such a, a human impulse to want to be part of a group. Yeah. I mean, we are, that is part of our evolutionary biology. And this is a really great example of of why that works mm-hmm. from a practical standpoint. Yeah. And I just loved seeing Tobias coming to grips with that and his 
real acceptance and understanding of his own motivations. Mm-hmm. And a- as always, Tobias is incredibly mature. He's very self-aware. Mm-hmm. He's just an incredible human being and character. And as you were saying, you know, he's thinking about what he could have done instead. And he's, he says, you know, I, I couldn't have survived the loneliness. There was no way out. I don't have happy endings. I couldn't have become a different person. All I could have done really was to wait. I could have endured. I saw that now. It wasn't a dramatic answer. It wasn't exactly inspiring. Endure, outlast, outwait. And then he sees his life just stretching ahead of him and being unhappy and just knowing that. And it's, it's awful, but it's so insightful. Yeah. And for, with the information he had, he made the correct choice. Like, right. yeah. he was, he observed what existed in this group. He's like, yes, I want that. He could never have made the, like, imaginative leap to, like, oh, yeah, they probably have evil alien slugs in their heads. Like, yeah. no. The reason that I feel like this is sort of a takedown of cults is that it's, what it's saying is, like, oh, this seems too good to be true. And it is. Mm-hmm. There is always an extreme cost like this. Maybe it's not making that statement. That's sort of how I read it. Well, I, I think you're right that it is a takedown. And I, I, the best example to me of that is actually the conversation that Tobias has with with Jake and then Jake's reaction with yeah, Tom yeah. to what the sharing is asking them to do. So it's, it's actually this, there's this whole section where Tobias is trying to figure out whether he's going to become a member of the sharing. I mm-hmm. get a yerk in his head. And his kind of advisor, mentor within the group is explaining what that means to be a full member. And it's super creepy, right? Mm -hmm. He's Mm -hmm. like, um, you have responsibilities. You trade a little bit of freedom for a lot of belonging to something bigger than yourself, bigger than you can imagine. Change is coming, Tobias, and you'll be part of it. And Tobias is like, okay, well, I don't know what that means, but like that's, Seems cool. I want this, you know, I want this group, whatever. It's fine. And then he talks to to Jake and Jake says, I I don't want to join this. I have no interest in it. Tobias is like, why not? And he says, I don't know. People start talking about how the individual has to give way to the group. And I just get kind of jumpy. And Tobias says, don't you want to be a part of something big and important? Jake says, no, I don't want to be a part. Maybe it's just me. But anytime someone starts talking that stuff, I start looking for an exit. And it's just a really great indication of Jake's knowledge about the, the world, but also... Yeah, and it's also Jake's privilege in terms of, like, Jake has the connections he needs, like, the support, the network of, like, people who love him to be happy in life, mm-hmm. and Tobias doesn't. Like, Jake doesn't have that desperate need to be filled because it's already been filled by his yeah. family and his friends. Yeah, but they're both making good points here. Yeah. yeah, that's a really interesting point, Jenny. I think it's also, like, this... You know, like, the best leaders are people who don't want to be leaders, right? It's sort Mm -hmm. of like Jake's innate goodness, right? He can detect (laughs) that the sharing is bad. It's sort of like he's, like, this generic protagonist leader type person also. Not that he, not not to undermine what you were saying, Gray, but, like, that's interesting that it's kind of like Jake, not just because of the privilege that he has as a character, but also just his role in the group is like, yeah, he, he doesn't want to be a part. He's not part of the group. He's the leader of the group. <laughs> right? He doesn't yeah. follow orders. He gives them. I really, I really, really love how the way that the sharing operates in this book makes humanity complicit in its own takeover. Mm. Because the reason that Tobias is so vulnerable to the Yerks, to the sharing and what they offer 
is because people have failed him. Like the ways in which we have failed people in our communities and our societies, like even in Tobias's uncle's case, like the people in his family, like that is why there's this chink that the Yerks can get in through. Mm-hmm. And that's what Visser One recognizes in like Visser, that like some people, like Jenny Lines, are broken and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And like that is our collective fault that there are people like that. Mm-hmm. It's not our fault that the Yerks are invading us in this book, but it's our fault that we're vulnerable to that. It's a really good point. So the thing that I really like about the Tobias chapters is the stakes for Tobias are so much higher than they are for the other characters, Mm -hmm. right? Like, we've sort of talked about how, oh, did Tobias want to be a bird? Like, did he really want to, like, leave his old life behind and stuff? Of course he wanted to leave his old life behind. Right, and and so Jake resetting the timeline, he's thinking, like, surely it's going to be better and oh. Tobias gets infested and killed, and he never connects with the other Animorphs. Like, oh, wow. Like, when, when he shows up at the end, I think it's maybe from Jake's point of view, he's like, and then, you know, like, uh, that kid, Rachel and that kid Tobias show up, right? Like, yeah. they, they never connect, and they never, like, this interaction where Tobias is like, Jake, don't you want to be part of this too? And he's like, nah. Like, <laughs> Congrats, Tob- see you later. Tobias is going to keep thinking about that forever, Jake, Jake probably, will never think yeah, about probably that. never thinks about yeah. it again, mm-hmm. right? And it's just so grim, and it's like to buy, like everyone loves Tobias. He's he's the best one, and so to have him get killed most like two thirds of the way through this book and never rejoin the rest of the Animorphs hurts so much. It really does. And like, what a statement about like like all of the Animorphs are are miserable in this war, and Jake desperately wants to not be fighting it and not ever to have fought it. And in fact, it is better for Tobias than the alternative life he would have had. Right. And right. that's, this book is really acknowledging that. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, even maybe without Cassie shenanigans, Jake would have gotten caught up in the war anyway because Tom is a controller, right? Like, that was going to yeah. come up in some way at some point in Jake's life, right? So, yeah. So he couldn't have truly escaped. But it's like, Tobias couldn't have either. Yeah, because right? Cassie shenanigans weren't at all what pushed Jake to follow Tom right. to that thing where Tom, like, shoots some people at a TV studio. Right. Yeah, I mean, I do think one interesting way that this book kind of plays out in the AU is they form the Animorphs anyway, minus two people, mm-hmm. right? And and it's because of their own choices and what they see happening and their own desire to do something because of Tom or because mm-hmm. of Marco's mom. But there is a sense that the Animorphs still form. Yeah. They end up in the that. barn. Yeah, they yeah. still end up in the barn, but yeah. they're, yeah. Yeah, and the other thing that I really like about this AU and the way that it kind of works with the sharing thing is that um, you so you do get the Animorphs forming, but Tobias and Axe are just their lonely individual selves, mm-hmm. and it's so tough to see what they're like on their own and how much right. So like the sharing is a bad cult for Tobias, but like the Animorphs is that group that connects him to something larger than himself. Yeah. For real. And that that is what he needs. Right. And like, and uh, like in 23, when he finds out he's Elfangor's son and like that, like that connection, that legacy is so important to Mm -hmm. him feeling connected to something bigger than himself. Right. And so like when you have, you know, the, the person at the sharing is like trying to brainwash them into joining a cult, but um, he says, like, the speaker talked to us about how the lonely individual in society has been overemphasized in our culture. You had to join with a larger reality. Together we achieve happiness, fulfillment, meaning. Together, holding each other up, supporting each other, working together to overcome individual weakness, individual failing and pain and hurt. Right? That's all real. Mm-hmm. That's all those real. Those last two right? senses, like, those are legit, yeah. yeah. Um, 
and he's there with Jake, and it's like this sad misconnection, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They were meant to be friends, supporting each other, yeah. and in this world, they aren't. Yeah. And what he likes about the sharing is that they acted like I was an equal, like I belonged. Yeah. That's what he wants, and that's Those what he are, He deserves to want that and to have that. Oh, Tobias. So while we're talking about Tobias's story, so he ends up with this yerk in his head who is like a spy, basically, for Visser One, or like at least is misrepresenting what they're there for, who like claims to have orders from the Council of Thirteen to continue the war in the way that Visser One laid it out, but actually those orders haven't been given yet. The council is still deciding. He's just he has been has been sent to kind of stall, give fake orders. Mm-hmm. And I want to know, how did that go in the real timeline? Because there was nothing in, like, drogue shenanigans that made that happen, presumably. Hmm. The fact that this year got Tobias as a host might have influenced things. But did they get caught out as a spy in the real timeline? They must not have, because we didn't go to open war. Maybe they got caught out as a spy, but then the council's actual orders came through. Hmm. That's so interesting. So, like, yeah, I hadn't thought about who Odret would have... Who Odrid's host would have been if not Tobias? That's a really interesting thing. Like, how much does that change whether he gets caught? I don't see how it would have changed it, unless yeah. there was something in the host that Odrid actually got that, like, but, saved them. I don't but, know. But, yeah, my thought was that the open war thing, the, there's a month, a month goes by mm-hmm. without active resistance by Andalite bandits. And I assume Ooh. that that's the main factor oh. that would contribute to the council learning about things and Visser mm-hmm. 3's ability to unilaterally negotiate stuff. And, like, we don't know how much time passes before the events of Book 5 when we have the Visser 1, Visser 3 confrontation mm-hmm. where the Andalite bandits escape from the pool ship. Yeah. Right? So, like, maybe that happened, like, week 2 or week 3 in terms of original Animorphs time, mm-hmm. in which case, like, that is probably enough for probably, Visser 1 probably to Probably not that soon. Well... But, yeah, I don't, yeah know. I don't know. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. There's no there's no way to like s- speculate for sure. I think it could have gone it could have gone a lot of different ways. But. Also, it's it's not totally clear like, oh, we killed this like spy or whatever of Visser One, now we can go to open war. It might be more like and an Andalite showed himself on TV and now everyone and like said the Yurks are coming and that's what pushed it over the edge. So it wasn't really a Visser Three decision. Oh yeah, that's true. And Axe even thinks like Will will my actions accelerate the war in a mm-hmm. in a way that could be more dangerous? Yeah, yeah. But what else am I going to do? <laughs> right. If he hadn't, he didn't have the option of like fighting this sort of guerrilla war with the animorphs. And so. this is like a lonely individual axe is an axe who doesn't take a prince. Right. He mm, yeah. his issue in this book is like I'm an I'm an arrest. I have no one to take orders from. So mm-hmm. I guess I'm just going to do some stuff. And he struggles with that. And so it's interesting, like, in the original timeline, he's like, oh, thank God it's a leader, right? Yeah, I'm going to follow Jake, and yeah. I don't have to think anymore, right? Yeah. So, I really like Axe's decision-making process, though, where he is sort of balancing these things of, like, if I call the Andalites and get them to show up, the ideal will be if there are a bunch of Yurks in orbit that they can just annihilate who have, like, haven't taken hosts yet. That will only happen if resistance is crushed on Earth. And... So he is, he's like, okay, so maybe I don't want these humans to do well. So, but like, that seems also immoral. And so he's like, okay, you know what? Just do both things. Get the Andalites to come. Try to help the humans. Don't worry. Like, you know, do the right thing with what's in front of me. And don't like try to manipulate it for maximal strategic gain in the war. Which like, I really like. I feel like it's not a very Andalite decision. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, proud of Axe for that one. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess it is interesting that Tobias is held back, but Axe actually kind of has to grow up a little faster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That hadn't really occurred to me. Yeah, that maybe it wasn't... It was helpful for Axe maybe in a gradual growth way to have the Animorphs to, like, influence him. But yeah, having to think for himself is... Right. Something he got to kind of sidestep. And right. Yeah, and the nice. only reason he works with the Animorphs at the end is because of, like, Cassie saying his name, right? So, like, mm-hmm. you need this kind of, like, Hail Mary, like, Axum, Axum, you know, I don't know. He's like, do we know each other? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. he doesn't want to work with them. <laughs> They're like, can we have that, that, like, ray gun? And he's like, you've already lost two, and now you've lost three. <laughs> he, like, takes it from them. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so Axe was a, like, he was maybe a little too funny in this book, you know. Was he? He was very, He hasn't like, had enough time to learn human humor. I don't, I think maybe this was Axe not, not realizing how funny he was being. Mm, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Certainly with the cookies and, uh, like, the cookies. psychologist or psychiatrist, I guess, he was prescribing yeah. for him. He's like, should, can we read some of that section? By all means. <laughs> I love the... <laughs> So this is this was the thing where I was like, Axe is making a joke when he's he's describing his existence as a human, and then you get the slow reveal that he's been like he's being kept in a psych ward. He's like, uh-huh. I had acquired a human morph, and I had learned to pass as a human. <laughs> in fact, I had been asked forcefully to adopt a particular location as my primary residence. And he's trying to be like, I'm such a good human. <laughs> Can you go? Yeah. The the doctor's like, all right, you have to at least give me your name. I am called Hey Moron. Hey, Moron. <laughs> That's not exactly a name. That's just something someone called you. Uh, when will I receive when will I receive the cookies? They are delicious. <laughs> well, to tell you the truth, the nurses don't want you around at cookie time. You made quite a scene yesterday. Can you just imagine? Can you just yeah. so How funny. do you think X eats? I don't know if we were allowed to say the real name. I, how do you think Axe eats the cookies formed by two thin, round, black discs with a layer of a piece of white <laughs> substance between them? I think Cookie Monster style. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just like shoving them in his mouth. Half of them end up on the floor. They just, yeah. He's really, like, you know, entranced by the idea of chewing. He's never gotten to do it before. Oh, yeah. So so he says, the cookies formed by two thin, round, black discs with a layer of adhesive white substance between them are the finest accomplishment of your species. My species? <laughs> I had made a mistake. I had allowed my agitation over the cookies to cause me to be careless. I meant our species. You said your species. <laughs> Evidently, I am insane. May I go now? <laughs> and then he's like, someone saw me demorphing. It was, I, I was really worried. And then I realized, lots of people here have seen aliens. <laughs> okay. I will, the... The treatment of, like, mental health in this book is so uneven yeah. because I loved some of the stuff that was done with, like, Cassie's concerns about her own, like, mm-hmm. these, like, visions and ideas she was having. And then you get Axe in this, like, mental one hospital or whatever. Nest. Yeah, like, and it's like two of these humans were named Elvis Presley and, like, one of them, like, sings a song every night. And it was like, okay, this is definitely playing into, like, really bad comedic stereotypes of of mental health and like it is clear even like the cassie stuff there is no understanding of like you know mental illness comes in all sorts of different you know types and Mm -hmm. it's not all like raving like people think they're elvis like that's not but yeah the the line i'm glad you brought that up because 
I think Cassie has some line about how she's like worried about herself, and then she's like, "Well, you know, I've read that schizophrenia first manifests when you're a teenager," and it's like, that's like to me, that's such a Cassie moment of like, yeah. "Oh, like I read about this thing, and like I have this knowledge that is like allowing yeah. me to like self-diagnose and like be worried," and you know, it's in the context of like her parents are like super nice and chill, and she's like a huge uh, overachieving nerd who worries too much. So. <laughs> yes. It's not easy to be subtemporally. I was just about to say. Yeah, Axe has some great moments in this. We learn, I feel like Axe acquiring the shark easily could have happened this way in canon. Oh, it probably did. Because yeah. he, yeah. he has that morph uh-huh. when the animorphs get to him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and there's like nothing had really changed before this point, except maybe his yeah. slight worry about isolation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love that whole that whole scene is great. It's just like a really good like, logistics <laughs> of Axe figuring out what how to how to touch shark. Yeah, <laughs> really great. How to touch shark? <laughs> <laughs> I picture like the wiki how page with like you know the diagrams like first instruct your computer via thought speak to put a triangular yeah. force field around the shark. Well, and yeah, and I love like. He drains the water out. He's like, now the shark could only move in two dimensions. Yeah. I have it. And then he jumps in and it like bites him. And he's like, oh, no, it doesn't bite him. It's very sharp. Oh, yeah. It like, like scrapes him. He's like, ow. My soft dandelion legs. Uh, it's great. And he's all, he talks about how many shark triangles <laughs> this shark mm-hmm. is made up of. Like, yes. The fins are all sharp triangles and the teeth are sharp triangles. And then he touches it and he's like, it is rough. Right. <laughs> So funny. It was great. Oh, we get the passage of him talking about taste. I skipped this when I was uh, talking about the the foods that he discovers. Yeah. Taste and such tastes. Cigarette butts, bologna sandwiches, grape juice, Vaseline. (laughs) And best of all, the indescribably vibrant, mind-altering, overwhelming taste of cookies. He's not wrong about about cookies. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> I mean, I really like the oh, they, stones. They were so careful about not calling them Oreos, but but you should add like a air raid siren noise. <laughs> okay, but, but yeah, why? Sorry but, to inform you, Gray's been carried off by the Oreos police. <laughs> you could call oh, them shoot. Hydrox cookies. Yes, the sandwich cookies do not use the brand name, okay. but they do use no, the brand can, name for Vaseline. That could not possibly have been like a copyright issue. Yeah. I think they just thought it, it was they, funny. Right. Yeah. They, they talk, talk about, about brands all the time. Right. So yeah, no. So this is my question: Is is this an axe who just hasn't discovered cinnamon buns? Yeah. yeah. Or is it that our axe has never tried Oreos? <gasps> it must be the first one. Yeah, I, I yeah. think it's the first yeah. one. This is this mom. is maybe the worst thing in the AU is that Axe oh, never eats Axe a is separated bun. from his soulmate, oh, yeah. the cinnamon bun. Yeah, that is really rough, and tragic. he's maybe gonna die. Fast and kill all this. the animorphs. Who cares? Just give Axe a cinnamon bun. Yeah. All right. This is, this is a good stance. <laughs> council t- council takes a stand. All right. <laughs> I'm gonna put that in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> Recording the minutes of this council meeting. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So what do we want to talk about with the other animals? We haven't talked about Marco and Rachel at all. We need to talk about Marco. Ah! <laughs> okay. The first time I read this, I hated it. And then the second time around, I was like, no, I see it. This is actually great. Yeah. Do you mean the first time, like, when you were a kid? No, or... I mean, like, when I read this. I read this twice. I got uh-huh. I got into it, so I stopped taking notes. And then I, I had to go back and reread it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. So, like, I was like, I think it's just because um, Rachel's connection with Tobias is totally absent here. And yeah. I like the yeah. idea that, like, she would have thought about that more but it, I, you know i get she's interested in dating other guys and like yeah the thing the thing that really clicked for me this time around is just that 
I could, like that conversation where Marco and Rachel are in the movie theater and they're mm-hmm. like being bantery and stuff. Like that totally could have happened at any point. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. It does seem a little bit more like how like how is Marco pulling this off? Like how is he not <laughs> putting his foot in his mouth more? Yeah, he was very smooth in a way that he normally is not. But I sort of I've come I've come around to it. It works. Yeah. I don't, do you guys want to talk about how you reacted to it? So I. Initially, strongly disliked the way Marco was bothering Rachel in the theater. And he's like, and she can't get away. And now I can talk to her. And, like, it was very, like, very pickup artist approach to girls. Like, aha, I have got one. The rest of her girl gang is not defending her. Like, just, yeah, really, really unhealthy approach to gender relations. Um, I did, I did like his reactions to like her I liked the way she kept like coming back with responses and he was like oh she's quick oh she's really smart oh my god a girl who's beautiful and funny this is amazing like I liked that reaction I was like yes Marco I'm glad you're recognizing her like value here Mm -hmm. and I really liked when um so he's like doing very well and maybe going to be able to ask her out successfully and then his mom like shows up like actually out of nowhere like Mm -hmm. transporter beam style out of nowhere and they end up chasing her and Marco kind of, like, you know, loses his cool, obviously. His mom just showed up. She's supposed to be dead. And they're, they chase her, and he, like, gets hit. She hits him with a revolving door, and he's like, no, just keep going after her. And Rachel's like, okay, the boy had focus. Yeah. And then he they lose her in a crowd, and Marco's like, okay, you have to look for, like, what she shouldn't be doing. She should be alone. She should be going down the steps. So look for not those things. And Rachel's like, oh, wow, he has a brain. Maybe I'll go out with him. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I, <laughs> I like them appreciating like, the values that they bring to the table. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like they have a nice, like, they would keep each other in balance pretty well. I think, I don't think it would be a great relationship in terms of, like, emotional closeness and vulnerability. I think maybe they would, like, date date for a few months and, like, maybe have a huge fight. A few months might be too long in high school time. And, like, maybe have a huge fight because they don't actually, like, know how to communicate with each other. But I think that they, I think they would have some fun. Yeah. I really like that thing that you were saying that, Mark, I think so. Like it is, it is crappy how Marco approaches dating Rachel. Yeah. Bec- but yeah. like he, he has this really immature view of what it means to date a girl, right? Yep. He's like mm-hmm. he's looking for you know like a trophy girlfriend or something. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, Rachel's Status, the prettiest, yeah. so she's the best. But I, I feel like he does. He's like maturing in his approach. He's like, actually, I don't. What I want more is someone who I can like be funny with and, like, trade quips yeah. with uh-huh. more than I want, just like Rachel because she's pretty. So, like, yeah. mm-hmm. I do appreciate that he's maturing a little bit, even over the course of that conversation. Yeah. Um, it would be an interesting relationship for both of them in terms of, like, growth. <laughs> but I think, so, I, the thing about it for me is that, it's like, I don't see what Rachel sees in him. Uh-huh. And the only thing that I think bonds her to him is this totally crazy thing that happens mm-hmm. where they, they... She's like, you know what? I've been waiting for something like this my whole life. And here I am. I'm going to chase this supposedly dead lady through the mall. (laughs) Thank goodness something exciting is happening. (laughs) Yeah. And and so, like, and it actually makes sense to me that um, Rachel's, like, protectiveness, right? Like, Mm, I think that that just going through this with Marco is probably going to carry them a long way. Because she's like... That's really true. And she also sees... His vulnerable side, right? Like oh, that yeah. he is worried so much about his mom and like how serious this is to him, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. The the Cassie glitching circumstances of this alternate timeline create just the perfect mm-hmm. situation for Rachel and Marco to like bond in this way. 
and get past Marco's misogyny and Rachel's kind of like general above it allness. Yeah, and right. the fact that he's a head shorter than her, and this is something that I think neither of them is mature enough to like not see as an obstacle. Yeah, yeah. And so like it really works. And we've talked before about like what if Rachel could have been the leader of the Animorphs, mm-hmm. right? Like with Cassie the, the lieutenant and stuff. And we're like, how does Marco fit in? He doesn't. The obvious yeah. answer is if Marco and Rachel date, then he fits <laughs> but in. What about Tobias? Tobias yeah, right. Oh, it doesn't no. it doesn't work, right? Oh tragedy. Yeah. I also thought it makes me realize that how important that scene in the construction site probably was for Rachel mm. and Tobias to be like oh, bounced yeah. together, right? Because uh-huh. she does that thing where she's comforting him and Cassie, yeah, and like she takes him under her wing and, in that <laughs> moment, right? In the yeah. same way that here she's like, "This is yeah, like Marco, how Rachel now, come with me, Let's, forms connections." Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Do you think so? Cassie did the thing in this book again, like, I don't know why Rachel and I are best friends. Do you think, because Cassie, it doesn't seem like, has, is someone Rachel protects. I wonder if there was some moment like that in their friendship, and that's, like, you know, when they were five in kindergarten or whatever, someone stole Cassie's crayons, and Rachel stepped in and, like, slugged them one, and, like, is that why they're best friends? Yes. I mean, I can see it no other way. That's, <laughs> yeah. That has to be true. Okay. Although I did really enjoy the moment of friendship uh, where... Rachel, after she and Marco have chased after Marco's mom, she tells Cassie a highly edited version of the story, and then Jake spills accidentally to Cassie that actually that the real story involved, for example, guns and you know ray guns and such. And Cassie's on the phone with Rachel in the background, like teasing her about asking out Jake, and then. She says to Rachel, what didn't Rachel tell me? Rachel's like, I thought you'd get all worried. (laughs) (laughs) And Jake apologizes for spilling the beans. And Cassie says, Jake, I have to go and cause Rachel serious bodily pain. (laughs) And he's like, I understand. Listen, let's get together tomorrow. She says, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. Go kill Rachel now. <laughs> she hangs up and goes <laughs> it's an adorable friendship moment of, yeah, like, yeah. you did not tell me this very important thing, and now I have to injure you. It was also a little jarring to see them talking so casually about, like, causing serious bodily pain yeah. and, like, go kill Rachel. Like, I don't think they would joke about that as the uh, actual Now they would not. They would certainly no. not. No. But, but you it's, know. it's nice that this is a version of them where, like, that is so obviously a joke and not part of their real lives yeah. that they can joke about it. Exactly. So I wanted to bring up... Um, Avian and Pizer wrote in a question ahead of time uh, for Megamorphs 4. So she's pointing out that, like, the Rachel that we see here is very much like the Rachel that we get, you know, a dozen books into the series. Yeah. And not so much yeah. the Rachel of book two and book seven, who's who has more, like, self-doubt and stuff. And she suggests, like, are these really... 13-year-old Animorphs, or is it like the personalities of 15-year-old Animorphs now back at like the beginning of the series? Ooh. And did you feel did you feel like the Animorphs were like young enough or like naive enough? Like is it too easy that they clicked back together in this way? It's maybe a little unrealistic that Rachel and Marco do so well chasing Marco's mom. Yeah. And I do feel like Cass- the way Cassie talks about Rachel in particular, I was like, feels like someone who has a little bit too much knowledge. And then I was like, oh, she's subtemporally grounded. Okay, maybe that explains it. <laughs> and you're right that, like, Rachel was, like, violent, violent and ragey and like, oh, I just really like chasing this person in a way that I think we see emerge, but, like, had not yet emerged as part of her personality. And, like, it's weird that it was so quickly there, like, that she was so easily able to knock out Tom with a baseball bat. Yeah. 
Well, I, I did read them as older than in the first books, mm. um, which actually I, I didn't register right away, not until about halfway through. Um, actually, it's in the Go Kill Rachel Now um, <laughs> passage because they have this um, fun, bantery, kind of on the phone, asking each other out, but having this larger conversation. Asking each other out. Yeah, like, you know, let's go study together. But it, it felt like, my note was like, oh, they're like normal teens. And then I went, well, hold on, wait, if this is the beginning, right, they're preteens. Oh, 13. Yeah, so, but they read as, I think, yeah, like yeah. Evening and Pizza, I think they read as the older versions of themselves put into an early version. And one way that that kind of manifests is what we mentioned earlier, that they do kind of form the same band. Mm -hmm. And some of the ways that they fall into that are the ways that it happens in the first book, like Marco saying, okay, Jake, you're the leader, just because, I don't know why, just because, right? (laughs) But some of it is more of a more like Jake's confidence in a lot of ways is something that he has gained over the series mm, mm-hmm. and didn't have in his first couple of books. Um, so they did read to me as the older versions of themselves in some ways. Yeah, because in the first book, he's all worried about telling Tom that he didn't make the basketball team. Mm-hmm. And in this book, he's like seriously standing up to Tom. Yeah. And like Tom has to like push really hard to get him to come to the sharing with him. And, and the basketball team comes up with Tobias, yeah. but he's not, like, embarrassed about it. He's, no, just, he's like, just like, I didn't make the team. <laughs> he says darkly <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. It actually, it does make me think, now that we're talking about this, like, Jake, as he was in book one, like, if he hadn't become an Animorph, he probably would have joined the sharing really soon. Mm. Like, Tom would have mm. been able to convince him. I don't know how long Tom had been a controller by that point. Because I think he does invite Jake to join the sharing, at least in book six. I don't remember if he actively invites him in book one. Mm-hmm. He might try to get Jake and Marco to like come to the meeting. But yeah, he was eager enough for Tom's approval that I don't think it would have been much of a battle. On the other hand, Cassie describes Jake at the mall <laughs> as cute. Not cute in a little itsy-bitsy, he's so cute kind of way. He's a big guy. Not hulking big, just like he's two years older than he really is. I really appreciated this clarification. So Jake looks... 15. Yes, yes. (laughs) We also learn Rachel um, is twice as tall as the average gymnast, which makes her 10 feet tall. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that's probably an exaggeration. The other thing that we learn about Rachel, and I thought this was uh, very important, is that she has approximately 400 shiny white teeth. Oh, 400. yeah. 400. I'm so okay. glad Apple Grant is on our wavelength <laughs> about Rachel's teeth. Like, yeah. we, weren't, we weren't reading into it. No. 400 teeth. Actual shark person. Terrifying. Yeah. So another thing about them feeling older that jumped out to me is like, mm-hmm. so I we haven't really talked about the, we get the first scene with the Animorphs from Cassie's point of view and like how amazing it is. It's like mm-hmm. really, really, really good. Getting the Cassie and Rachel side of it, right? Because it's uh-huh. from Jake's point of view in the first book. Uh, but here's what Cassie says about Marco. Uh-huh. Marco's a comedian, not a class clown, not a guy who wants to make the teacher mad. Is he, he just, wait, is he not either of those things? Because I'm pretty sure he is. He just seems to think the world is funny. I guess a psychologist would call it a defense mechanism. His mom died a couple years ago. Anyway, maybe that's it. Or maybe he's just funny. Cassie has superhuman levels of perception 
Like, I know the characters were well realized, but like, she just completely has Marco's number. And, yeah, like, I don't how buy much it. time has she spent with Marco? It. Right? No. I think this could only be explained by her being subtemporally grounded. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah. okay, but also he definitely at least tries to be a class clown and like, does want to make the Cassie should have been like, oh, Marco, like, you know, sometimes he's nice to me, but usually he's mean to me. And, like, I don't know why. <laughs> like, he thinks he's funny, but he's not. Yeah. Right? Like, come on. That's what, that's what you would think about Marco, unless you're Jake. Pretty much everyone I mean, except for Jake hates Yes, Marco. Jake also wouldn't have. <laughs> Jake also wouldn't have an understanding of his humor as a defense mechanism. That is just like, that's, there's no way. While we're talking about this, I, so Rachel's like, she's into shopping. I feel like was always very much like a, oh, you know, she's like a really boring basic girl who's like into shopping or whatever. And like, we've maybe seen a little bit developed throughout the series, but here we get. It always seemed like they had trouble integrating it with the rest of her character. Here we get the best Rachel the Shopper characterization of all time. Where, okay, I'll just read a little bit of it. 25% off at Express, that's fine, she said. But same basic sweater, better mix of fabrics, 40% off at Structure. Plus, the point is, this sweater goes with the jeans on sale at The Gap, or the jeans on sale at the department store, and the Express sweater only goes with the Gap jeans. It's amazing, right? Like, <laughs> you, I totally understand the thrill of the chase that Rachel is uh-huh, feeling yeah. here, and how it's like, it's like this, like, self-directed thing that she can be, like, really, really good at. Yeah that isn't tied to any of the other high-achieving stuff that she does in her life. Ooh, nice, right? like, yeah. She's not doing this for, like, you know, to make other people proud or whatever. Yeah, and she's not really doing it to, like, win over the Marcos of the world either, right? Yeah. It's just She like, doesn't have any concerns about that. Right, right. It's no. like, so, and Cassie sees that, like, hunter in her, and I'm like, oh, yeah. this totally works to integrate those two parts of Rachel. I see the, when I'm with Rachel at the mall, I see the excitement in hunting, the combination of knowledge and instinct and the thrill of stalking and closing in for the kill. Yeah. So good. Like, it really is. It's a great analogy. And it's amazing that, like, okay, here's this teenage girl with these really strong, like, instincts in this direction. Well, what arena is she going to practice them in? Shopping. Like, what, yeah. I want to read some more of what Cassie says about Rachel just Mm. because it's, I feel like this this was more believable to me as a characterization just because she does know Rachel really well. It was still a little bit like, I feel like you know stuff from later in the series. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder where she gets it from. Not the hair or the clothing or even her eerie ability to never be messy, dirty, or wet. I wonder where she gets the indifference. I wonder how she can have every boy in school throwing himself in her path and be indifferent. Not that she's humble. No, you wouldn't call her humble. She knows she's special. But she's impatient with the whole idea of being popular or whatever. I get the feeling with Rachel that she's waiting, impatient, looking for something more, moving through life in search of a very different destiny. Mm-hmm. This is a very, like, at this point in the series, we could look back at Rachel at 13 and characterize her this way. It's a not quite believable. Yeah, but, like Because right, we never got this about Rachel in the yeah. first few books. Yeah. No, but it's such a good but, point. And, yeah, and I just remember, like, the end of book seven, when Rachel tells her dad, I'm going to save the world, right? Like... That's that's like the seed of that exists in yeah. the book one. She's looking but for something like this that's a bigger, seven, bigger scope than, yeah. sco- than, than yeah. shopping. So we should talk about some of the epic Rachel moments later in the book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Let's Ted, you it. were saying you really loved the... Uh... Okay, so there's this whole bit where Axe goes on TV again for the second time and really is like, Yerks, controllers, Andalites, come on. Like, this is happening. And Jake and Marco were there doing some spy stuff in Tom's room to like try and get evidence or whatever. And, like, Rachel's on the phone. She's like, hey, watch TV, watch TV. And Mark is in the bathroom. Tom shows up and hears Jake talk to Cassie on the phone about, like, coming after Tom and, and the people at the sharing. 
and he draws his Dracon beam and is like, all right, Jake, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. Marco tries to tackle Tom, and Tom just trips him onto the floor <laughs> and says, you too, Marco, like, don't make this harder than it has to be. And they go outside, and a car is coming to take them to the Yurk Pool to infest them. And, you know, the Visor 3's declared open war, so, like, the, the, the jig is up. And suddenly, a baseball bat comes crashing down on Tom's hand and knocks his Dracon beam to the ground. And then Rachel continues pummeling him. Her until, cousin. Yeah. Her cousin, until he's in the dirt, blood gushing out of his face. And then Jake is like, and there was Rachel, like, still looking perfect, baseball bat in hand. <laughs> yeah, not like, even out of breath. Or yeah, whatever. right. This is amazing, right? Yeah. Like, So, like, she, she like, ran, you know, the three blocks from her house over to Jake's, like, came armed, was, like, ready to do something, and just, like, jumps into battle. It's amazing. Rachel's so cool. Also, later, when uh, they're at the, the mall, and, like, the battle has started happening at the mall, and Axe is there, and they're a bunch of Horpajir, and they have, like, a dracon beam that they're using, but they're still getting pretty much creamed here. Jake lunged, slid on the polished marble floor, slid beneath the staggering Andalite, tried to grab the weapon, but he was nearly stomped by flashing Andalite hooves and the huge Tyrannosaurus feet of the Horpajir. That's when Rachel stepped swiftly behind one of the Horpajir. She was carrying the head that Axe had just cut off the other Horkbajir. The bladed Horkbajir head, she lifted it high and slammed it down, blades out. She buried the Horkbajir's head blades in his comrade. She also, she takes down Ava in an alley fight, right? Oh, when they're yeah. chasing her. Like, Rachel's she, very competent. She's ridiculously good at this. This is like the action movie hero we need. And we also get a little bit of her tactical like the narrow focus on oh, tactics yeah. in the mall fight where she they're like okay we need to get to where can we go to hide and she yeah. goes okay well we can't you know we won't go to the the warehouse area because there's gonna be a lot of people there we'll go to the furniture section and like hide in an armoire uh-huh. fine and then there's this whole <laughs> battle thing and they're like we need to get to the roof and she's like okay i've got a plan like we're gonna go here here and the like, store and then the store yeah and it's partially because of her deep knowledge of them all but it's partially because in the middle of a battle rachel knows how to get from a to b yeah and we see it also when she's in the alley when ava is there Mm. and uh she well actually ava's gone now and she's they're being chased by like ava's minions and they're in a dead end and she sees this fire escape and it's too high to reach and so she's like marco stand exactly here and then she like puts her hands up to like boost marco and has him run and like throws him up to the fire escape and like he manages to like grab it just enough for them to get up and it was just it was so good and like I I so I so want to see what leader Rachel would have been like like Mm -hmm. definitely a little more reckless um though you know maybe being the leader would have moderated her a little bit like she would have needed some strategic support I think but tactically she would have been great yeah I also when Rachel is smashing Tom to bits with a baseball bat she is also smashing Tamrash to bits with a baseball bat (laughs) which makes it so much sweeter (laughs) it's very good Yes. Yeah, Rachel, so bamf. Do we want to say anything about, like, Marco? Or, like, I don't know, what do the other Animorphs go through? We should talk about Cassie and Jake. All right, let's do it. Because we see, we talked about in Chapter 2, we see sort of the, like, the deep feelings that have developed. But we also get so much in this book about, like, the origin of their relationship. Like, we, they're, the narration, like, talks about it a lot more than I feel like the first few books did. Mm-hmm. Partially because the first few books had other stuff going on, and also because it's I feel like it's easier in the course of the series to be like, this relationship is already a big thing. It would have to be a big thing in this in this book too. But yeah, Cassie asks Jake out. 
What a hero. Would you like to come over and study with so me? Good. So good. Amazing. Cute. Especially for like a 13-year-old. That's amazing. Although I do love that she's very nervous about it. So she has Rachel yeah. there. And Rachel's like, do I have to do it for you? <laughs> yeah, Rachel definitely was pushing her in this direction. Good job, Rachel. Yeah, right. Without the like fight to save the earth, Rachel has a lot more time to like, really push Cassie. <laughs> That's amazing. That's such a good point. Although there is the incredibly sad moment. So Cassie is concerned about her own mental health because she's having sort of these visions. Mm -hmm. And she is like wandering around her house at night and she's like, ah, Ben and Jerry's. No. What if the reason Jake wasn't asking me out was because of my thighs? And I was like, this is like, it felt so real to me as like a teenage girl moment. And it's one of those moments where like, like, I have mixed feelings about it being included in this narrative, and, like... Because you, like, it's good that it's real, but you'd want it to be addressed. So, like, and it's, it's such a small thing that, like, yeah, addressing it and problematizing it would be, like, a lot. And, like, clearly he doesn't care about her thighs. Like, that is clear, but, like, also, like, I definitely thought, like, that as a teenage girl. Like, it is, like, what a horrible, like, toxic... Thought and especially if you're reading it as like a 10 year old girl and oh, thinking like no. this is what yeah. a 13 year old yeah. girl And it's not thinks. like this is the only place you're getting it, but that is the kind of thing that like would stick in the mind of a kid. Yeah. So I have very strongly mixed feelings about it because like it does feel incredibly genuine and also yeah. there are other things troubling. Right. Like uh I just I just connected this now, but when Jake talks about Rachel, he's always like, She's beautiful, she's beautiful. And then when he talks about Cassie, she's like, She's beautiful, beautiful in, in my, my eyes. eyes. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah. if you think about it in this context, is not good. So I wanted to bring up, though, the thing where um, Cassie's like, does Jake care that I'm black? And Rachel's mm. like, Jake's Actually, it's, does the... he care that I'm African-American? Which I'm oh, like, right. Rachel I says. I can't imagine anyone saying that out loud, but yes, okay. Yeah, Rachel says, Jake doesn't care that you're black. Yeah. Um, but it's sort of like, like, Jake is one of the one in a thousand guys who never thinks about that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm deeply skeptical. <laughs> That was interesting that Rachel Rachel says um, Rachel describes her as like saying you compensate for your old McDonald clothing sense by being pretty, very smart, very cool, and the most completely real person I've ever met. Like that last part was like that's interesting. Like I think that is what like Rachel wants in people. It's just because no BS. She's subtemporally whatever. Oh well, it's no. true. She literally oh, is no. the most real person. Oh, no, it's so true. <laughs> that's awful. But I'm the point so you sorry were I brought making, it up. No, the point you were making was good, Jenny. It's <laughs> mm-hmm, a good point, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. What else do you want to talk about before we get to the legions of 90s moments? There's some really nice writing in the the first Axe chapter that I wanted to call out. Mm. Um, so, well, the first one is like writing and world building. He talks about being in the dome ship after it sinks, and he says, Life support was intact. The low power force field that kept the transparent dome from being crushed by the ocean's pressure, all that was intact. The energy plant would last for 100 years. The grass would grow, the trees would bloom. The pond had spilled out during a temporary loss of artificial gravity, but it had mostly refilled. I could live out my life down here, live out my life in this habitat meant to duplicate life at home. Ooh. Um, Ooh, wait. Can we go back to the energy plant? Is this a plant that creates energy? Or do we think it's like a power plant? Oh, I read it as power plant, but I like the idea that it's uh, energy. I don't know. I did like that. Um, And then later, he's talking about, you know, the Earth's environment and the fish swam away into the murk. Even when Earth's sun was high in the sky, the light down here was dim, rippling, green-blue. During planetary night, the dome was so dark that I could stand and watch the faint phosphorescence of passing creatures, 
like slow comets crossing my personal sky. I want to visit the Andalite Dome under the yeah. water. Yeah, super cool. I also wanted to point out, so they can't morph, which is right. devastating. Yeah. But as a result, they pick up guns and use a lot of guns, which is a thing yeah. that they never do in canon. And it's so funny that it's like, <laughs> it's like, okay, well, we don't give them the morphing power. So how do we make this like an exciting conflict? Uh-huh. They'll just use the guns, right? Like, <laughs> that makes sense. And they, we learn what it feels like when someone is disintegrated by a Dracon beam and you are touching them. Ah. Like, at one point, there, there's a Horkbajir that was disintegrated and they, like, run into him while he's being disintegrated. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, touching a live wire, I think. And then, more horrifyingly, Jake is holding Cassie's hand and then he, like, lets go of the hand that is no longer there. And he, yeah. like, feels the, like, electric charge of it. <sighs> so it, does, it seems like Dracon beams somehow will target a whole person. And but if you're touching that person, you'll feel it, but like it won't affect you. It's mm. like it, it like travels through your body somehow, which is interesting. Like mm-hmm. I would expect it to just burn a hole in her, right? Which I think is how we've seen them right. act before. Yeah, this is a wild. little more Star Trek, maybe. Great. Did you enjoy this morphing description? No. My nostrils drifted across the fluid surface of my face, seemed to crawl across liquefied flesh to stop just behind my stock eyes which had themselves slid down to opposite sides of my head. It was exactly the part that I highlighted. <laughs> That's all I wrote down, because oh. it was really the liquefied, the, yeah, the liquefied, the fluid surface of my face with the nostrils drifting, was the part I was like, I bet Grey hates this. I did. So then, I heard the sickening slurp and slush of internal organs reforming, relocating, disappearing altogether, being replaced by more primitive structures. <laughs> Just, the, the sounds are the thing, like, often that, that creep me out the most, crunching of bones, that kind of thing. And like the slurp, the slurp and slush of internal organs moving around. I'm like, oh, no, thank you. I'm good. So this book was really well written. I feel like it wasn't that well edited. Ooh. Oh my gosh, thank you. I was just about to bring this up. There were there was like one paragraph where like they talk about split second like twice, and there was like one other thing that I noticed. Can I read you this sentence? Oh, please do. By the time I worked up never to look again, they were all three gone. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It seems like the Um, editing attention was... Well, we don't know... Wait, you have the actual book, right? Not the... Yes, I have purchased this off of the Amazons. The other one was Human uh, is Newman. <laughs> Which I was like, that could be just a like. Tr- but yeah, I, I had some like, I think transliteration. Errors, but the but. what is that sentence trying to say? I just that seemed wrong. There was also this is just I'm just being overly picky. I just I liked this this edit. Um, so Axe is the shark, and he says the instincts were as clean and elegant as a crystal dagger. I was like, you know <laughs> sure. what is not clean and elegant? Adding an unnecessary adjective to that dagger. <laughs> Are not all daggers clean? <laughs> like, I I feel like you should have just cut the crystal. My personal opinion. Fair enough. You should probably edit that out. I liked it. I, um, the other bit that I really love is when um, Cassie and Rachel and Marco and Jake finally get the, get the team together, like, officially. And it's kind of like, like Rachel and Mark are like, come on, Jake, you're making this up. You're pulling our legs. Like, it sounds like, you know, like, what is some kind of like conspiracy or something? And then Jake like takes a big breath and he's like, 
Yeah, so I think there might actually be a conspiracy. <laughs> Here's why. And I was like, yeah. I love it. It was the great. The whole rest of the scene is like, you get the bit where Marco's like, yeah, man, you're the leader. Of course you're the leader. Yeah. And then Cassie's like, yeah, Jake, you are. And Rachel's like, oh my God, Jake is the leader. Like, <laughs> it's it's so good. good. And he's like, okay, I guess we're going to follow Tom. Let's do this. It reminded me of the thing. I remember someone talking about like the first Star Trek reboot movie that you're like waiting mm. the whole movie for like, you like really rooting for like the bridge crew to get back together. That was that was how this felt. Yeah. And of course, you never totally get that moment of all of them there because we aren't recon- reconstituting reality here. But it was so satisfying when the four of them were in the barn again talking about this. Yeah, it really was so good. I was also amused by the thing where Marco was like, "I'm not into conspiracy theories," and I was like, "False." <laughs> I read book fourteen. You are into conspiracy theories. Do you want to do? 90s moments. There were a ridiculous amount of 90s moments. So many. How about when Odorite is going through Tobias's memories to pass the time, as if he's browsing at Blockbuster. Yes, that one. Yup. That was my favorite one. We had, so we we talked about, we already read the part with uh, flipping channels, which mm-hmm. is also sort of a 90s reference. Style with Elsa Clench. Did anyone look that up? I did not. I, I assume. did. It okay. was a television show about fashion uh, mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. that was from like 1980 to 2000, something like that. It was on for a long time. And it was starring Elsa Clench, who would talk about fashion. Uh, and she was apparently Australian. Okay. It's yeah. a very short I Wikipedia article. This. Yeah. I, the part where Jake says he's never voluntarily eaten a Brussels sprout is very outdated because now everyone knows that Brussels sprouts are delicious. But actually, Brussels sprouts are more delicious now because they created a less bitter cultivar, which I learned from XKCD. <sighs> yeah, in like the early 2000s, they're, like Brussels sprouts became better. You guys are blowing my mind. Whoa! Whoa. <laughs> I'll have to, you'll have to reference the XKCD. We, we need to edit this notes. in and put it in people's feeds immediately because <laughs> yeah. people need to know. What? Yeah. What? That's This is like, it's the opposite of how bananas are worse. Yeah. Which is my go-to for like food tastes change. Now I'm just going to say, did you know Brussels sprouts are better now? Like they're actually, oh my God. Yeah. Can you eat the old cultivar or did they just not make it because obviously it's bad? I assume they don't make it anymore. I don't know. Crazy. The future isn't always bad. The future is delicious. Uh, all right. Well, we've also got Paul Schaefer from Letterman. Oh yeah, he really starred in that that, that movie that they're watching, like a like Omni or like yeah DNA MX. documentary um, at the science museum. On screen, Paul Schaefer was saying DNA is a fabulous molecule. If anyone can do, I don't know what he sounds like. If so, anyone, yeah, does anyone know? What he's, I, I can only do the Paul Schaefer from Hercules, the Disney animated movie. <laughs> Wait, Let's hear what? it. Um, it's something like. DNA is a fabulous molecule. Oh my god, I'm so glad you did yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> if you have to imagine, well, like sunglasses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also, there's a Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Um, Adam Sandler, not so much. That was so Very good. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jake has a lot of sports references about how he cried yes. the day Michael Jordan retired. He knows when Mark McGuire banged his record homer. Um, also, there's a Mulder and Scully reference. Ooh, nice. Yeah, so when they're in they're in the Omni Theater or whatever, or just like a movie theater at the Science Museum, I guess, the movie has to stop because the film catches <laughs> the film and burns. Catches on fire. <laughs> then Marco anymore. says, now we'll never know what happened. Did Dave ever make a cameo? Or at least Biff Henderson? Very good. There's a Circuit City and a Sam Goodies at the mall. Oh, yeah. Uh, wait, I have to read Axe's description of the Circuit City. Circuit City was devoted to archaic electronic devices, computers, video discs, and music players. I thought it was devoted to devices we would also think of <laughs> as archaic. 
It's true. I do like in that scene the like normal people reacting to aliens. Yeah. Where it's like, surely, you know, like a really advanced species must also be like really nice and peaceful, right? And then Well, that's sort of the lie we were fed about the Pemelites. Right, right, right. (laughs) Exactly. And then the uh, the the result of that guy, the other guy's like, well, yeah, I don't know. They did blow up all that stuff. And it's like, either way, I better watch it on TV and I'm going to buy a big one. <laughs> Thank you, Americans. And so, then after um, after they all of the aliens have been revealed, President Clinton urged everyone oh, to remain yeah. calm. <laughs> I was really surprised. I guess it's because, like, he wasn't really a character, but, like, in 20 through 22 when like the, oh, the heads of state yeah. are around you never get any of their names yeah and now it's suddenly it's president clinton mm-hmm. i was very entertained when tobias is waiting to be inducted into the sharing he's sitting in a room with a few other people and this this guy's like hey kid what's your name tobias good name you like music sure ever heard of format c's colon <laughs> i shook my head he looked disappointed yeah well you will next big thing you heard it here first they just need a break. We've got a video, but we can't get any play on MTV. What kind of band name is that? It is the worst band name, <laughs> and I really also bad. love it so much. I was what like, and like, is it a typo? Like, is it like because it wasn't like real words? They couldn't figure out how to parse it, and like the text reader or whatever. Because it's, no, if if Gray also had format, yeah, format, and then C E E apostrophe S colon like what what is that i also wondered if it was like a is that a reference to some kind of programming language like you know <laughs> f- format c's know. colon like what oh, like the, the c drive on a yeah computer. <laughs> i don't know but it was it cracked me up i was assuming it was just riffing on like stupid metal band names yeah, or something. yeah. but like is it is it a specific reference like, i don't know I if someone knows please tell us the best outcome would be like this is like Catherine Applegate's friends band. And she's like, this name is terrible and I will humiliate you for all time by having to buy <laughs> that would be ideal. of it. Absolutely. That's <laughs> so funny. There was, a, when they're watching TV, another channel had gone back to Jenny Jones, who I actually hadn't heard of. Seems to be a talk show host in the 90s. Uh, someone describes the Andalina TV as some Howard Stern type of prank. Mm. When they're fighting Tom and Rachel has just wailed on Tom with a baseball bat, uh, we get Jake Dove landed hard but snatched up the ray gun. He rolled, came up to his knees, and yelled, Freeze! It was so NYPD blue. Yes. Oh, that's great. <laughs> oh, when we were talking about sports sports stars, one of the most epic references was when Jake's trying to express his depth of feeling to Cassie. And he says, Cassie, there's nothing I'd rather do than study with you, really. Except maybe get some tips from Michael Jordan. <laughs> Okay, the most horrifying. I don't even know if this is a 90s reference, but this caused me to physically recoil. (laughs) Tobias has, like, signed up with the sharing. I filled out some form with my name and address and social security number and all. (laughs) And then they asked him some follow-up questions, but none of them were too personal. I was like, (laughs) why do they need to be? You already gave them your social security. This is the most (laughs) horrifying thing that's ever happened. But like, what were what were Michael Grant thinking? Were they thinking like, oh yeah, this is a, this is normal, or like, have they have they been the victims of, of identity fraud like, over and over again <laughs> in their lives and they don't know it? Or like, is this something that happened more regularly and that's why there's so much identity uh-huh. theft now? Because like, our you know the older generations were like, yeah, sure, social security number, put that on every form. I don't know. It must have been. Yeah, it maybe must it's have been supposed less to be like a then. cult warning sign that Tobias is too naive <laughs> to pick up on. Jake's like, think so. I just don't want to be a member of any club that needs my social security number. Exactly. <laughs> Reasonable. <laughs> 
Yeah. Also, I mean, maybe not unrealistic. I I think that's all I had, but that's it's really a very 90s book. Is there anything else we want to talk about before we get Gray to repredict the end of the series? Oh, I f- yeah, I have to do that now. And yeah. then 41. And then 41. Okay. All right, Gray. The reset button has already happened. As we've discussed, it probably can't happen again. Although because Cassie's you're, temporarily grounded. You're welcome to predict that it happens again, because who knows what will happen. We're vicious We know, trolls. but you don't. <laughs> yes, so, you are. Well, not all of your predictions have to die. No, it's true. Some of them the, the triple wedding could still happen. Um, okay, so I still think that they're going to defeat Cryak at some point. Okay. And um, the last book is a Cassie book. And I, given what we have learned in Megamorphs 4, mm-hmm. I worry that what is going to happen is one of them is going to die, possibly Cassie. Mm. In whatever cave nonsense is being predicted here. Mm-hmm. So I I think that's that's one of my predictions is that Okay. Maybe Someone Cassie possibly dies. Cassie dies in some kind of cave situation. In her own book? Yeah, it's like our one of those like <sighs> someone else has to finish it. Oh like we have seen that like before. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Um, um what about your predictions from book thirty? About when Ava comes back and stuff? Right. Yes, good. Uh, all of that remains unchanged. Okay, remains great. unchanged. Yeah. So it's in book, it was book 50, no, it was book 40 they free her? No, uh, 45 they free her. My prediction was something about going to the Anadi homeworld with Marco's mm. mom. That's my mm-hmm. note there. And then uh, 50, she joins their team. Oh, nice. okay, cool. Okay. Yeah. What happens in the war against the Yerks? Oh, right. Uh... <laughs> I'm very focused on these <laughs> characters. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, no. Uh, they do eventually defeat them with the help of the Andalites, who arrive and um, provide them the extra support that they need. And there's some kind of like peace accord with the Yerks, so okay. that they depart from Earth forever, and okay. Earth is able to start over and have nice. a new beginning. Okay, mm. that's why it's the beginning. Yeah. Okay. Peace accord. Nice. I like. I like that. Yeah. That's definitely what happens. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. I know so many things. Heard it here. Okay, so on to 41. 41. This cover yeah. is amazing. You can look at the inside also. Wow. <laughs> um, okay. Wow. This is a Jake book, and Jake is morphing into older Jake. How old do we Does think that Jake is Does he look like Jake a perfectly average person? Average in all ways? No. He doesn't. <laughs> he looks... But wait, the interim morphs are not horrifying. This, this is might the, be the least first cover. horrifying cover. Yeah. It's just aging technology. Okay, mm-hmm. so he's like 15 here, so he's like 30. All right, what, do you, what is he wearing? He's wearing a futuristic, spacey kind of jumpsuit thing with a... 90s cool technology on his belt like a yeah like a communicator, communicator kind thing. of thing tricorder yes it's a tricorder for sure <laughs> he's got like a patch on his shoulder with the uh, lightning bolt on it and the number five he do you think that refers cool. to the number of animorphs because i forgot axe again oh probably but i've yeah. already crossed that off my list <laughs> well they can do it more what than about that. the um the text uh yes uh they're out of sight you're out of mind and the title is The Familiar. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the inside cover is um, him in a s- spaceship, probably, and there's some kind of, like, 
futuristic city outside the window. Does that say to do report to work? That is what that says, yes. All right, and it's 5.58.16, so it's very early in the morning. Yes, it is. Jenny, do you remember anything about this book? I remember extremely little, but I think the one thing that I remember slash have pieced together is too much for me to be able to help Gray with the prediction. He has aged because of time matrix shenanigans. Okay. Because I want to check that box off my bingo card. Mm -hmm. And they're also going to, uh, this is going to be a possible future where he is part of Space Force and is on the Anagi homeworld. Oh, nice. Nice. Outside. And um, that is all because in this time matrix future, he is still fighting the Yerks, but now as part of like an interspecies oh, space force thing. Cool. Right? I, I have that. no idea if that's true or not. I really don't know. Okay, I'm excited. Ted knows. I don't remember. Yeah. Anything you want to follow up on? I hate this one. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I'm, I'm actually really excited to revisit it because I don't like. I don't think it's going to be as bad as 37, but like I have a strong, How could it possibly perhaps irrational dislike of this book. Mm, so okay. I'm... I'm very excited that I get to summarize it. I'm looking forward to... I'm also looking forward to yeah, this, yeah. books that we hate. All right. Well, next time, we'll read the one that Ted hates. If you want to find us, we are at Animorphology.com and at Animorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the Animorphs ebooks on our website. <laughs> They could have called it an anaconda here, and they did not. Crazy <laughs> <Grace> face. <laughs>